Hello everyone, my name is Sergio Rosario for Cigars Podcast and tonight is a very special night because we have one of the most, I would say, love, controversial, hated, but he honestly, I, I, I see him like he's like this huge like Care Bear, like me. I'm, I'm, I'm a big guy too and, and I, I love his personality, I love his honesty and I love his passion for cigars and we have here Mr. Steve Saka with us tonight. But first, I want to introduce to my two co-hosts this night, Nelson Rivera from Puerto Rico. And for the first time, as one of my co-hosts, Mr. Miyagi, Rafael Montes. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hi, Sergio. I'm reading, uh, reading to the entire CR Podcast community. Uh, I'm very happy. Um, it's our first um, interview of the year 22. And today we'll participate in as part of the community. Um, I introduced uh, Miyagi. Hey, Miyagi. <laughs> hello, hello. No, thank you. Thank you, both of you, honestly, for uh, allowing me to go and join this group on Cigars Podcast. Um, I'm glad for everybody that's actually here joining us today. Um, and uh, thank you for being part of this community. Truly appreciate you guys. Steve, I, you know, I wanted to say welcome. I wanted to say uh, Miyagi has a very sexy voice, as you can see. Um, we cannot, I mean, this is something that I I should have thought twice about inviting him over as a co-host because it's like, you know, my voice goes down the drain. Like, he just has those sexy, like, late night FM, you know, radio host. <laughs> How are you, Steve? I'm good. How are you guys? We're doing great. We We actually... Super pumped because, you know, um, I think one of the things that happened this this year was this this past year, 2021, the community, I feel like the community was played the main role in the in the cigar industry. Right. Like with this whole pandemic, like, you know what we're doing right now, doing this every night, uh, getting to know you guys, buying your products. Uh, getting to know the products, I think that is super important. So, if I had an award to give, I would give the community, like the, like the online community, like the clubs. Uh, we have here the Ash Holes. We have people from Black Lion Luxury Cigar uh, of the Month Club. Uh, we have people that um, from Puerto Rico also here, La Familia, and other 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 clubs. Um, and I would give them like that MVP prize, like that award, just because. If it wasn't for them continuing to, to you know, get uh, talk about cigars, smoke, try to get the new releases, try to I uh, get themselves uh, immersed in what the cigar culture is all about. Um, I, I don't know what would have happened. So many events canceled, so many things going on. Um, what, what can you tell me about this? What can you tell me about the community? Well, I mean, I mean, as we all know, smoking cigars are cigars are very peculiar because sometimes they're a very social activity and sometimes they're a very solitary activity. Right. Um, but I mean, I can only talk about from my perspective. I mean, I was pretty much a solo cigar smoker in the eighties and early nineties. I mean, yeah, I had my circle of friends and they also smoked cigars when I was enlisted in the Navy and when I first got out of the Navy, but it was a pretty small world. And I know for me, um, when I discovered the uh, internet, well, I shouldn't say it that way. I knew about the internet before that because of porn, but I mean, but when I found that there was 
cigar groups on the internet and it used to be in a usenet news group uh, an old alt dot whatever and uh that was the first time i had that inner connection with other people who i hadn't physically met and of course it was much different back then because we didn't have the advent of video and you couldn't actually hear anyone's voice so you always kind of had this imagination of who the person on the other end was um but we started to um and it's probably because we didn't have video that we actually started doing a lot of uh, communal events where we got together in person. You know what I mean? Probably more so than a lot of the video communities have because you guys have a much more personal interaction, whereas everything we did was just in text and type. And um, so I look, I understand it because I was part of it back then. I mean, the one thing that I did learn, though, in that scenario was you kind of hit a limit as to how many people you could actually really interact with. Your circle can only be so big and then it becomes a little bit burdensome and you can't kind of go beyond that. So a lot of times the people that you first meet in these cigar communities are probably going to be the ones that you're the closest to for the longest. Well, people will come in and people will go out, but for the most part, the core group in that first year or two that you become familiar with, they tend to kind of be your circle that ends up happening. But it's it's definitely a, I know for me personally, it added immense enjoyment to my cigar smoking, having that interaction. And, and, and you know, this is something I want to say, I think in this past uh, two or three years that we've been smoking together as a, as a community, we we've seen a lot of people come and go. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of brothers of the leaf, sisters of the leaf come and go. And I think uh, what Steve said is, is just right on point. And of course, he has, you know, a lot of years of experience seeing people coming and going. But what he says about that inner circle is just, you know, people who get you. And I think that happens in all aspects of life. Right. Um, one of the things I, I, I want to break the ice with, um, Steve, is where... I mean, when when I have a, one of your cigars in my hands and I read the names, you know, as a Latino, right? <laughs> I'm like, you know, where the heck does Steve gets these names? Like, like this cigar that I'm smoking, if I'm not mistaken, is the Mi Querida Triqui Traca, right? And, and like, in, I don't know, in, at least in my culture in Puerto Rico, like Triqui Traca, it's like a thing, like a thing that doesn't have a name, like El Triqui Traca. It's like, that thing over there, like when you can't describe a thing, you call it triki traka. And then oddly enough, in Nicaragua, the word for that is chachada, right? Which yeah. in some Spanish speaking cultures, that's a sexual reference, right? So it just kind of depends on what your local culture is. Whereas in Nicaragua, triki traka is the name that they've given to uh, to a particular type of firecracker. It's where they take these large, they're bigger than M80s. They're almost like quarter sticks of dynamite. And maybe 10 sticks of dynamite and they string them together in a long serial line. And then they lay them in the street down the length of the street and they light one end and it just keeps going bang, bang, bang down the length of the street. And that's what Nicaraguans referred to as tricky traca, right? Same thing with the word Miquirita. I mean, Miquirita, it means my love, my dear, yeah. but it all depends on the context in which you use it. You can call your, I mean, it means your mistress, <laughs> It can mean your wife who you still find sexy after 20 years. You can call your little niece your Miquirita, meaning someday she's going to be a heartbreaker. And in Nicaragua, Miquirita has a little bit darker meaning. In Nicaragua, Miquirita is kind of almost like the side piece girl. You know what I mean? So yeah. 
so many of these Spanish words, um, they really depend on where you're saying them and how you're saying them. Sin compromiso. Sin compromiso in Nicaragua means without compromise, no compromise. In Mexico, it's something you whisper to a girl at a bar, meaning no commitment, right? So it's, it's one of the weird things about the Spanish language. And listen, I'm not going to pretend my Spanish is horrific. You know, food Spanish, factory Spanish, tobacco Spanish, great, <laughs> regular Spanish, really bad. Um, but, you know, over the years, I pick up things and, you know, and a lot of times when it comes to stuff like that, it's stuff that people think of as ordinary because it's part of their culture. They don't realize is actually unique, like the term Sobra Mesa. How the, the no cigar brand had ever been named Sobra Mesa before is just mind boggling to me. Exactly. Because it's like the perfect name for a cigar brand, right? It sounds romantic. It means a great time of the night. You know, everybody enjoys Sobra Mesa, but yet it wasn't because it's just kind of like, yeah, it's Sobra Mesa. It's like naming a cigar dessert. You know what I mean? It just it doesn't mean anything to the people that use the word all the time. So, but, you know, being a gringo and, you know, getting, you know, initial exposure to these things, I pick out things that interest me or intrigue me. And, and, you know, that's, that's where you hit, like, you know, the target because all the names are things that we know and we're familiar, we see every day, but we never thought of it. And, and that's why I love it. Like todas las días, like. I heard the story about Todos Las Dias, and I was like, you know, I think it's misspelled until I heard you saying the story about, you know, it's it was misspelled. <laughs> it is misspelled, <laughs> but it, I went into it knowing it was misspelled. <laughs> I, I heard you telling a story that you knew it was misspelled and, and you didn't care. And, and, and it's like, and it makes sense, you know? So at least to me, I really like that. And, and it's crazy how, you know, we identify with this, uh, even though, um, You know, again, these are things that we do. We see every day and you come out with a name. To, when it comes to branding, Sergio, I tend to go to two extremes. I tend to go with really super classical Latin Spanish influence. And that's because when I became a cigar smoker, that's really all there was. And, you know, I was a huge Cuban cigar junkie for many, many years and obviously a huge legacy brand smoker for many, many years. So that's where I fell in love with cigars. So I tend to always fall back to those naming conventions because they feel right to me. They're comfortable for me. It's what I would want. Are you in progress? Or, or I go the, other, go way. the other way. And I, and um, I, um, I, uh, I'll do something really irrelevant, like, you know, now leave me the hell alone or, you know, the unicorn or, you know, U-boat or something like that. Just the same way as when I was at Drew, there was Liga Bravada, but then, you know, you had Dirty Rat, you had Feral Flying Pig. So I kind of bounce between the two, but when it comes to like real brands, I very rarely put a, a kitschy name on them. Those are almost always reserved for limited releases, small batch production, because, listen, I, I understand that 20 years in the future, it's very unlikely that someone's going to be someone's smoking gonna get you, you know, they're just not, you know, it's not like, oh, have you had the U-boat? U-boat works in geek cigar circles, but it doesn't work for the general audience. You know what I mean? That's totally right, Miyagi. I give you the microphone. This yeah. is your first time here. Welcome. 
Thank you. Thank you. Um, actually, you kind of caught into some of the ideas I was actually uh, warning about, especially in that name. Um, one of my favorite ones actually is Don Derma, man. It's like, where did you come up with these ideas? And especially the name. Yeah, well, I mean, again, almost all have some sort of personal meaning or reference or reflection back to them. I don't tend to just choose names because they sound good. I mean, I have certain things that I like. There's a certain cadence that I like. There's a certain kind of like, like when you think of great classic brands, they kind of have a three to four syllable. They kind of have a high low to them. You know, it's Monte Cristo, Romeo e Julieta, Cohiba, Liga Pravada. There's, there's a cycle to them. So I like names that can kind of lend themselves to having a, almost a sing-songy uh, sound to the ear. Um, but in the case of Dandurma, Dandurma, my first exposure to Dandurma was when I was enlisted in the Navy and I was in Turkey and I thought I was buying taffy and it turned out I was buying ice cream. I had no clue that what that guy was selling was ice cream. And it's this really weird gummy ice cream. It doesn't melt. It sticks to the cone. When you lick it, it's like it's almost rubbery in texture. And I'd never seen that before. And it's called Dandurma. It was just so weird and so unique. And when I did the blend that is Don Dharma, I didn't do it with the intention of it being Don Dharma. I was actually working on samples for the original Sobra Mesa. And I made that blend. And it was kind of like, it was a cigar that I really thought was fantastic when you retrohaled and was rather okay when you didn't retrohale it, right? <laughs> it's not normally the way it works. Normally cigars that taste really good uh, can you retrohale them or can you not retrohale? Does it add to the experience or take away from the experience? But in the case of Dondurma, Dondurma is an entirely different smoking experience if you retrohale it. If you don't retrohale it, it's just not worth the money, in my opinion. And I just thought that was really weird. So I just started calling it Dondurma because I thought that ice cream I had had in Turkey some 30 years earlier reminded me of just this is the weirdest ice cream I'd ever had. This is a really weird cigar blend, hence Dondurma. And that's where it comes from. That's nice. amazing, honestly. It's it, and it, I agree with you in that one. Definitely, the experience is on the retro, one hundred percent. Like if you're not really in, you're missing out on so much nuances. That's why I but always tell people me, not to buy it if they don't retrohale. It's a waste of money. Well, and, and that and that brand. is that is something I wanted to ask you because you know again, why are you doing blends? Right, that's our next topic. Let's talk about the blending process, uh, please, because I know we're all fans here of of that process and we would like to know more but when you're blending and you say well this cigar has a great it's a body but if you don't retrohale do you think that's uh maybe like do you complement the marketing to tell people please retrohale this cigar or like you just said well if you don't retrohale don't oh. buy it how do you get people to go through the experience that you just went to get the best out of the cigar right if you know the qualities in the retrohale how do you get people to you know, retro. Well, in the case of Dondurma, I didn't. I mean, I made the blend. I thought it was interesting and I shelved it. I thought I was going to put it into a box. I thought it was one of the front runners for Sobra Mesa. But look, cigars taste different when they come out of the cool room and they've had a little age to them. So, but whenever I'm trying to figure out whether we can really produce something, I have to make at least, I like to make a whole month, but at a minimum, I have to make a week to just kind of get some sense as to what the true costs are going to be. So I made a thousand Donderma to then four months later decide it wasn't really going to ever go anywhere and just left in the cool room. And I smoked it occasionally myself. And I met a retailer who I'd never met anyone that retrohaled every puff before. 
Um, I met a retailer, uh, Ronnie at Socreto, and I noticed that every single draw he takes, he retrohales. And look, I retrohale. If I'm working, I retrohale all the time. But if I'm smoking a cigar for enjoyment, I retrohale once in the beginning, maybe a couple times in the middle, one time towards the end, and that's pretty much it. I'm not retrohaling every puff, but this guy was like a fucking steam locomotive. I've never seen anything like it. I said, you know what? I got a cigar I want you to try. And I sent it to him. He loved it. He felt like he could champion it. I said, okay, man, I don't want to go through the heavy lift of releasing a cigar that I know needs to be retrohaled. But if you're willing to tell the story and do the dirty work, then go for it. And, uh, and that's ultimately how Ronnie ended up with Don Derma was because he was willing to do that. But it, again, it had a personal connection because that's how he smokes. You know what I mean? Exactly. And most people don't smoke like that where they retro every single draw. Now, well, now, a lot of your cigars are, are really, and I'm sorry to, to cut you off there, but a lot of the cigars are really very easy to actually do the retro and, and, well, and take a lot of the actual is, nuances. I, I always test the retro. I mean, the retro has to be great. But in the case of Don Derma, I don't think the cigars is enjoyable if you don't retrohale it. Where with the other cigars, it's kind of an added benefit for those that do retrohale. You know what I mean? You don't have to retrohale to enjoy a Miquerita or a Sober Mesa Brulee. You know, whereas with Don Derma, in my opinion, you really do. Or you're really not getting your money's worth in a Don Derma. And, and, true, that, is, and that is, I think, the, the, the honesty factor right there. Uh, where you, um, you know, you're not uh, sin compromiso, right? Like you are not committing yourself to something that you don't believe in. And, and at least personally, that's what I look up to in, in a cigar maker. I, I want honesty. I don't want uh, people just to sell me a cigar because they want to make, you know, some money and not care about the, the customer. Yeah, but, uh, you know, in, de in but, defense of my compadres, look, we're in a really challenging, difficult business. Um, you guys as consumers are incredibly fickle as to what you like and you don't like. What you like today, you don't like just a few months later. Um, it's, uh, it's highly competitive. And look, they need the cash flow in order to stay in business. Um, so for them, you know, their challenges are a little different than my challenges. And, you know, for me, I have the luxury of being able to do that. But I don't think that everybody does. So I, I can't fault them for it. You know, it's just it's just not fair. Well, uh, Steve, one of the questions I had for you um, was about the blend, the blending process. To me, it's um, so those, those of, of you who know me know that I am a professional musician and I like to use, you know, music as, as, as my expertise, right. To, to get into the conversation about cigars, but like, you remember the bands in 70s, 60s, 80s, they had their own sound, right. You could listen to a band and you could tell which band it was because of the quality of the music. Uh, and I believe cigars are exactly the same. You are one of those people that you can tell apart your cigars from any of the thousands or if not millions of other cigars that are out there um, and all the other blends. Um, do you think you have like a certain profile uh, of blending? How do you see yourself and conceive yourself when it comes to the blending process? Will you say I'm a guy that likes to 
play with this part of the process a little bit more, or I'm a guy that likes to try everything, or I already come up with some ideas, or I have my different stages where I decide to blend something. And then I go and I have this tendency. Um, I'm just curious about uh, how that's, that goes inside your head and um, how you come from the beginning to right now, 2022, in that process. All right. This is an hour long answer. So let me see how I can <laughs> truncate this. Um, first off, one of the things that's very different about what I'm currently doing is I'm only making cigars for a customer of one. I just make cigars that I like. Just that's them. I make cigars that I like. I decide what I want them to be. I put them in a box. And then ultimately the market gets to decide whether I hit the mark or I missed the mark. I don't, I don't share anything with anybody. Nobody gets their two cents or their opinion. Nobody at the factory level, nobody in our home office, nobody that works in the company, none of my best friends, nobody's palate that I respect. And there are plenty of people whose palates I do respect, but nobody gets to have a comment. It ends up finished as a product in a box. And then ultimately the market determines whether it sells or it doesn't sell. Um, I kind of come to that conclusion because everybody has different likes and dislikes in cigars. And when you try to please everybody, you ultimately end up making something that's very in the middle. And in the middle for me is just kind of like no man's land. You can be in the middle when you're Altidus and STG and, you know, Swisher and those big companies that are trying to sell, you know, literally tens of millions of cigars every year. Um, but when you're small like me, you need to have something that differentiates yourself. So by just being the only arbiter of what I consider good and what I consider bad makes it a much easier process. Um, look, I have plenty of blends that I have made over the years that probably would be some of the best cigars I've ever made, but I've ultimately decided never to release them because for me, I thought these other ones were better. So that's number one. Number two, you know, it really depends on how you're coming to create a blend. I mean, blends are pretty much done three different ways. Uh, the first way is that you have a unique ingredient that you want to somehow utilize or maybe even potentially highlight. So you kind of build a blend around that one particular ingredient. Most times it's wrapper, but sometimes it's a particular filler that you work with. Um, the other way that you go at a blending project is you have kind of a genre in your mind. Hey, I want to make a mild, medium, sweet, creamy style cigar, which was the case with brulee. So I kind of had a target as to where I was trying to get to with the blend. And that set the direction. The third way, which regretfully has become the most popular way that most cigar blends are made today, is a company recognizes there's a product in the marketplace that's doing really well. So they give it to their factory. And they say, here, smoke this. We want you to make something similar to that. And they try to basically copy somebody else's success to try to get the market share that they need. And many cigars are created first in sales and marketing meetings long before they're ever done on a factory floor. Um, there's pluses and minuses to that approach, um, but it's not one that I, I have to do to satisfy the needs of my company. Now, if I was a $100 million a year company, this approach is not a good idea. So I, again, 
I give them some leeway on this. I understand why it happens. But those are really pretty much the three basic approaches that you kind of come into a blend as a starting point. Then from there, it's really just kind of a matter of what you like or what your focus group likes. In my case, I don't have a focus group, but um, for me, there are some very common traits that run through most of my cigars. There's always a bit of earth. There's always a bit of coffee. There's always an inherent underlying sweetness to the tobacco. Um, even when I make a really strong cigar, I don't tend to make cigars that blow your head off. I don't tend to like ones that are super peppery or super bitey. I don't want to feel any sort of physical anguish when I personally smoke a cigar. And part of that has to do with how I smoke. I smoke upwards of 10 cigars most days. And that means I'm pretty much chain smoking. So when I finish the first cigar, I'm lighting the second cigar. And when I finish the second cigar, I light the third cigar. So I don't want the cigar to blow my palate out. I want the cigar to be strong enough that it's satisfying as I'm smoking it. But I also want it to leave me craving the next cigar. And so for me, that's a really key component. The other thing that's a really key component for me is smoothness. Even when you're making a strong cigar, um, I think that most consumers, regardless of where they are on the strength spectrum, most people appreciate smooth. And too many times when you make a really strong cigar, uh, it's just strength with no flavor, no, no depth. The other thing I like is I like cigars that the smoke coats your palate, that it has texture to it, that when I'm smoking it, I can chew on the smoke. And I can feel the density of it in my mouth. I want to actually have some significant body that's important to me. I also want the cigar to have some finish. I don't want when I exhale the cigar for it to instantly be gone. I want to have the sensation on my palate that it's there. And another thing that I take really critically that I think a lot of manufacturers fail to is figuring out what ingredients play well together because in order for a cigar to deliver the flavors and aromas that you want, it has to draw and it has to burn in an even fashion. And I think there are a lot of great blends that I've had over the years that taste good, but the cigar just doesn't burn for shit. It burns wonky. It burns uneven. It's this, it's that. Look, I make subpar cigars too. I mean, it's naturally handmade organ out of organic materials. You're never going to have a hundred percent success rate. But I really try to focus on the mechanics of the tobacco so that it tries to limit that from occurring. Because if a cigar doesn't burn well, it ultimately won't taste well, no matter what you do. And so for me, taking into consideration those mechanics are really, really critical. Um, and not all materials that taste good play well together. I mean, I love peanut butter. I love lobster. Peanut butter and lobster don't go together. It's just that <laughs> simple. Unless it's some sort of Thai peanut dish that's done well, you can do, you can do it. But, <laughs> but for the most part, these are incongruent ingredients, right? And uh, so I, I always try to live within those guide, those guide rails of also understanding I can only make these things do so much. So I try to not ask the materials to do something that's out of their natural character. I try to live with the natural character of the leaf, the texture, the structure, the thickness, the combustibility. Because look, some tobaccos burn much faster. Other tobaccos burn much slower. When you put them in a blend, you need for them to work with one another. The slow one to help 
slow down the fast one, the fast one to keep the slow one going at the same pace. And this is something that I put a lot of time and effort into. And as a result, you end up getting a much more consistent smoking experience by paying attention to the mechanics of the tobacco itself. And I I think that gets lost a lot of times. But you you also have to understand that most, most people, you have to understand that most brands the blends are chosen the same way you guys choose cigars at the retail shop. They're just being given samples from a factory and they're labeled one through 10. And they're saying, Hey, smoke these 10 cigars and tell me which one you like the best. And the guy says, Hey, I like the one in baggy number four, but I wish it was a little more this, or I wish it was a little less that. And then they go back and tweak it, but they're not really, most people that are choosing the blends, aren't actually the people that are making the cigars and going through the materials. And that's something that really separates what I'm able to do. And look, I wasn't able to do this 25 years ago. I'm able to do it after having, you know, three decades of experience. I have a pretty good feel as to what plays well together. And I try to put the people that play well together in the same room and not try to force a square peg into a round hole because even if I can get it to work some of the times, I'll never get it to work all of the time. And it's being cognizant of those limitations and kind of and living with that. Oh, wow. I just I hear you though. talking, Miyagi. <clears throat> I hear Steve talking, and it's like poetry. Like, well, he was describing the way he makes his cigar, and I'm smoking the cigar. It's just like it totally makes sense, right, to hear it from him. And I know a lot of you or all of us that are smoking uh, his cigars right now are feeling the same way. I think um, it's if they're burning bad or drawing bad, then they suck. (laughs) (laughs) I I think the important thing here is actually to to kind of like put the two of you together, your cigar and, and, and your words and that you know to me sounded like poetry right like you're just describing something that you really know um and and it's just great that's why we have this podcast to have the community come in and listen you know firsthand experience that firsthand from you um now i want to welcome um somebody special luis castillo who made this happen uh he said he's smoking right now a brulee blue and um luis told me yesterday that when he met you in South Carolina, and of course he he invited you to the podcast, you and him had the same shirt that you guys had in TPE. So he has two pictures with you with the same shirt, <laughs> and he's like, "What are the odds?" <laughs> well, I can tell you what the odds are. They're one hundred percent because I literally that same shirt I own ten of, oh. so I always wear that shirt because look, a I'm a fat dude, right? So finding clothes that fit a fat guy are impossible. And no matter what I wear, it's always going to look bad. So I find that one Robert Graham black shirt fits me as good as it's ever going to fit. and looks as good as it's ever going to look. So I literally own 10 of that exact same shirt. And not only do I own 10, I own 10 in three different sizes. So I own 30 of that shirt. Okay. (laughs) The exact same identical shirt. And that's, that's pretty much what I just wear all it's almost like a uniform because I just I don't want to think about what I'm going to wear I don't care what I'm going to wear nobody cares what I'm wearing the only thing they care is that I'm very fully covered that's the only criteria when it comes to me is you want a lot of coverage 
And that shirt does that. So that's the reason why. And the truth is, if you look at almost all the pictures when I'm at events or at the trade show, like when I go to IPCPR or whatever it's called anymore, I can't remember, PCA, I will literally wear that exact same shirt for four days in a row. But it's four different shirts. They're clean each day. I'm not using the same sweaty, stinky shirt every day. But I, I love yeah. it. I love it. I think uh, that that's a good title. Like, you know, just discovering like like secret, like wardrobe. I think that's. Uh, I think a lot of people do that. I mean, look what Pete. Pete wears the same brand of jeans and he wears a tat T-shirt every place he goes. Right. It's true. Um, yeah. Skip Martin wears the same flip flops all the time i mean i don't even know if he owns a real pair of shoes to be honest with you so i i think a lot of people that travel a lot interact a lot it's just easier and being a dude you don't have to do that oh you wore that dress yesterday kind of thing you know <laughs> what i mean you kind of you kind of can get away with it so well Um, you know, I, I, I have a, another topic that we want to touch base on. And this is a topic that, you know, I already heard it a bunch of times and you probably heard it a bunch of times. I, but I'm asking it because of the community, because it's something that we talk a lot about and it's the topic of the brulee, right? Um, I got to talk about it because when we were in Vegas, we had a conversation about it and everybody has their own theory. It's like a conspiracy theory. Like it's like. I don't know. It's it's just something that people talk about daily. Um, I probably think it's one of the most talked uh, topics in, in the cigar community. And um, it's one of my wife's favorite. So I, I got to thank you for that because I got her away from smoking uh, infused cigars into smoking real cigars. And that was her first. And she said, buy me a box. And it was just so, so hard to get. cigars are real cigars, too. Okay. <laughs> I don't smoke them. Maybe you don't smoke them, but... I'm not, I'm not going to begrudge anyone that smokes infused cigars. So what's so what's the what's the uh, you know you you've had this commotion for a while. People saying like this cigar has a sweet tip. This cigar is infused. People right. just come up with all sorts of crazy stories. I heard It's stories not like infused. I, I don't hear that much. But the sweet tip conversation I hear a lot. You know what's peculiar about that is so when we launched it at PCA. We gave away maybe 12 to 1300 brulees and not a single person said to me that they thought it was sweet tip over those four days. And it was really like two months later that uh, John Carney from La Florida Minicana kind of made a big deal out of it on another podcast, the cigar authority about it being sweet tipped. Um, honestly, for me, it was a windfall to be sincere with you. Um, anything that gets someone to talk about your cigars and peaks interest yeah. is always a good thing. Because look, the challenge that we have as cigar companies is just getting consumers to even sample it, to decide whether they like it or they hate it. Will they buy it again or not buy it again? So anything that kind of raises a question is almost universally a good thing. You know, yeah, granted, it would be different if it was like made by like slave labor, then that would not be a good conversation to have. But this conversation about whether it's sweet tipped or not, um, it really, it didn't hurt me at all. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, most manufacturers would get really upset. They would get their pennies in a twist over it. But I kind of rode with it. You know what I mean? Um, I actually kind of added a little bit more fuel to the fire in the beginning about it. Um, the answer is it isn't sweet tipped. Um, what it is, is the fact that most of the Connecticut shade cigars that we as consumers smoke 
our very young rapper. Um, Connecticut Shade is not bulked in polones. Um, Connecticut Shade is traditionally fermented in what we call a mulling room, and that's where it's subjected to heat. Um, typically, 90 degrees for a few weeks, 100 degrees for a couple more weeks, and then 110 degrees for the third section. And the thinner wrappers will make their way through the three stages of the mall in as little as 30 days. Um, the heavier, thicker Connecticut Shade wrappers, and again, this is relative to Connecticut Shade because Connecticut Shade's never thick, but relative to Connecticut Shade, it could take upwards of 50 to 60 days. But once you go through the mall, that tobacco is essentially ready to use. And it's a very short process. So you're pulling tobacco out of the barn. So it was in the field, in the barn for about 30 days, comes out of the barn, in the mall for 30, 40 days on, 45 days on average. And then it can instantly be put on a cigar. And look, on our end, we do things that are as efficient as possible for the most part. Now, in my case, I'm not selling cigars that are done as efficiently as possible. I know that Connecticut Shade, given some time in the bale, it improves. In the first six months, it helps to kind of like um, even the color out a little bit. It makes it a little bit more oily. So if you can let it just sit for six months, it just has a better appearance to it. But if you let it sit for about three years, what ends up happening is the connection is this trait, this inherent thing where it's a little bitter, yeah. a little bit of bitter backbite in all Connecticut shade, more in Connecticut grown Connecticut than Ecuador grown Connecticut, but it's still there. But if you give it long-term bale aging, that bitterness dissipates. It just goes away. So what ends up happening is you're then able to get a little bit more of the inherent sweetness out of the wrapper. And that's essentially what we're doing with brulee. All of brulee has Connecticut shade that's been allowed a minimum of three years of bale aging. So that inherent bitterness has gone, which then leaves the smoker with just the inherent sweetness that you can get out of the wrapper. And that's what consumers for the most are tasting. And what I would say to a consumer that wonders whether it is sweet tipped or not sweet tipped, what I would recommend to them is buy a whole box and you'll notice that the sweetness is inconsistent from cigar to cigar. If it was a traditional sweets tip cigar, it wouldn't be like that. You would have a lot of them that are very, there would be the same level of sweetness across the board. And yeah. I think if you smoke a couple dozen of them, you'll notice occasionally you get one that's a little sweeter and occasionally you'll get one that's a little less sweet. And sometimes you'll be like, is there any sweetener? And then other times you'll be like, oh, this one's definitely sweetened. Yeah. And that's to me is that, that kind of shows the fact that it isn't intentionally sweet tipped because when something's intentionally sweet tipped, it's always the same. Like I sweet tip still well um, star aromatic number one, that is a sweet tip cigar. And it says so on the package actually. So I'm not, I'm not opposed from a philosophical cigar snob perspective of saying, Hey, I don't sweet tip cigars. I absolutely will sweet tip cigars. Look, I made millions of dollars at Drew Estate on sweet tip cigars. So I, 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 it's not like there's some moral high ground for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the case is Sober Mesa isn't. And I think you'll notice that on the blues, um, sometimes, oddly enough, on the blue, you even get more sweetness sometimes because the cigars aged another year beyond the three years in the bale age. So oddly enough, the blue sometimes are the sweeter of all of the brulees compared to any other. Now, if a consumer wants to think it's sweet tipped, 
God bless them. They can think it's sweet tip. I'm okay with that. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me at all. I mean, what I care about is do they enjoy it? Do they like the experience? Do they, you know, do they feel like it's worth their money? Is it worth their time? But um, the question of whether it is or isn't, it isn't, but I ultimately don't care. I love it. <laughs> Miyagi, let's talk yes. about the next topic. The, yes. the new, the new, I, what, what was it? What was it named? Was named the most innovative cigar of the, of this past year. Right. And, and you know them pretty well. I think you've gone through, through all of them. And I know Edwin is smoking one tonight and Edwin is, uh, <laughs> Edwin is like one of the biggest critics that we have in cigars podcast. And he's like, he has his own system. He's been smoking for a lot of years. Uh, he surprised us in, in Vegas because um, he said he had bad knees. And whenever we were going to the buffet or eat, he was like, I don't know. He was like, I don't know, maybe like 10 meters ahead of us. Uh, you should have seen him in that buffet <laughs> in Caesar's palace. He would just like storming through it. And all the young guys in the back were just like, you know, Just walking and I mean, um, so Edwin just said to us on the chat, like he's smoking one of uh, the Stillwells and he loves it. And I want to leave Miyagi because he knows that uh, those cigars better than I do. He's gone through all of them. But we want to talk a little bit about that and the inspiration. Go ahead, Miyagi. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, for, first of all, I, I'm still a little salty. I wasn't able to hang out with you at the launch in Low Country uh, with the Low Country family. I saw it was a really epic party. Um, but I was glad to actually be able to see you uh, recently at the TPE. Um, but yeah, man, uh, still has been a decent hot topic that I've come across, not just back down in Low Country, but in all the brick and mortars that I visit. I personally am a pipe smoker myself, and I had the um, privilege to hang out with Jeremy Reeves, who gave me other extra pointers before actually enjoying the, uh, the cigars, too. Um, but If we recall correctly, your original um, idea was like, you know, being innovative, bringing something new. I listened to several podcasts and several of your interviews, which you, you know, said you were just coming up with something new into this industry. Now that it's been several months, you've been, you know, stated as one of the most innovative, you know, uh, cigars. How do you feel is this project actually uh, evolved so far? Well, the answer to the question is I don't know. I mean... Am I happy with the results? Yes and no. I mean, in my opinion, there are some Stillwells that I think are better than the other Stillwells, personally. Um, the thing with Stillwell is it's just, it's just so different. You know, it's very hard to judge a Stillwell as a one-to-one -one comparison with a more traditional cigar. Um, so, you know, for me, a lot of it has to do with And this is just a business concern of my own. I have a very good portfolio. And right now I don't have anything that's not increasing in sales. And when a company releases something new, the retailer is going to pretty much say to you, okay, I'd be happy to bring your new cigar in, Mr. Saka, but which one of your cigars do you want me to take off the shelf to replace it with? Because they're only going to give you so much space. So Part of, my part of my decision making was I wanted to create something that wasn't going to chew into my existing successful lines that are still growing. I didn't really want to lose something to gain shelf space. The other thing is 
As with all things Dumbarton Tobacco and Trust, they're very personal. I only make cigars that I like to smoke. And for many, many years, I have been making these pipe blended cigars for myself, but using tobaccos that I smoke in a pipe, I just put them in a cigar so I could enjoy them in a cigar um, because I'm lazy. And look, pipe smoking, pipe smoking, you know, even when you become proficient at it, it still requires a bit of uh, requires a bit of uh, uh, fumbling technique. You know, you got to worry about how you pack the bowl. You got to constantly tamp the bowl. You got to not, not over smoke it, not under smoke it. It's not like a cigar. Cigar is pretty cigar is pretty carefree. If you light it well to begin with and it's constructed well, it's pretty much a pretty easy one-step kind of process where even when you become proficient with a pipe, it still work. But when you're not proficient with a pipe at all, it's misery to be a pipe smoker. It's awful. And I think for a lot of people, they would like to try to be a pipe smoker and they try it and they find themselves unable to keep it lit. And if they and then they find themselves also with severe tongue bite which just ruins the experience. And I think many pipe smokers give it up. The reason I didn't give it up was because I was too broke to smoke a lot of handmade cigars and pipe smoking, separate of what you can spend on a pipe, but smoking pipe tobacco was relatively inexpensive, you know, to smoke a pipe. Uh, for $15, you can smoke 15 to 18 times on average, out of a two-ounce tin. So it's really quite economical from that perspective. So I became proficient at pipe smoking because if I want to smoke high-quality tobacco, this was a mechanism in which I could do so and still be able to feed my children. Um, but look, I, I wanted to do something. It didn't really start off as a... It didn't start off with the intent. It kind of went round robin. It kind of worked where... I met Jeremy and he was complimenting me on my cigars. And then I realized who Jeremy was. And then I was complimenting him on his pipe tobaccos. And because I smoke a lot of pipe tobaccos from Cornell and dealer, I mean, uh, McKellen's and Cornell and dealer, my two favorites for the most part, and McClellan's is gone now. So Cornell and deal pretty much occupies like probably 80% of what I personally smoke in a pipe. And I was telling Jeremy about the fact that for many, many years, I've been adding pipe tobacco to cigars. And uh, he found that idea interesting. I shared some with him. And then it just kind of one thing led to another. And we decided, hey, let's make custom pipe blends to go in cigars. Um, I don't know that I picked the four best, to be honest with you. Um, I have others that I think are considerably better, but a important thing to me was I wanted to try to encapsulate some of the basic kind of genres of pipe tobacco for the cigar consumer. And that was the reason why I started with the four that I started. Obviously, the aromatic is very clear, right? And that's what most people associate pipe tobacco with is aromatics. The second category that they associate pipe tobaccos with are English style blends. And then the other two, I chose a vapor a Virginia Perique. I called it Bayou because the average cigar consumer, if I called it a vapor, they would have no idea. They would think we're talking about, you know, vaping. Yeah. Um, and then I chose a Navy. And the Navy is kind of like in between an aromatic and in between a traditional, you know, because the aromatic, depending, I mean, the Navy, depending on how it's done, 
sometimes there's just rum topped on top of the uh, the Navy. In the case of the Navy that I ultimately ended up using that Jeremy made, it's something that happens in the Cavendishing tray. And so the rum is actually flash off of the tobacco. So you don't actually get alcohol still left in the tobacco the way we're processing the Navy blend. But I wanted to do these four basic kind of cornerstones. I and mean, look, there's others. You know, I, I think a logical one would be a Balkan, right? Um, I can see that. But a Balkan has to be a much stronger cigar because Balkan pipe tobaccos are quite strong. The other thing that I wanted to do is I wanted it was a cigar first, pipe second, but I wanted the pipe notes to be distinctive enough that for the experienced pipe smoker, they would say, oh, when they're smoking the bayou, they get that kind of lemon, citrus, zestiness out of the Virginia, that they would sense that on their palate, and that they would also experience that kind of umami kind of feeness that you get out of the Perique. And I also wanted the Perique to do what it does in a pipe, which it tends to start mild, but when you get to the end of so. a bowl of Perique, it's actually one of the strongest tobaccos that you can smoke in a pipe. And um, so I wanted to try to translate those kind of pipe experiences into the cigar, but not knowing whether consumers would care or like it because I have no clue, right? Because there's never been a consumer that's ever gone into a cigar store and said, Hey, do you have a cigar that has some red stove, Virginia, and a little bit of St. James Parish Perique in it? That, those words have never come out of anyone's mouth. So it's just a really peculiar odd kind of blend and and then what i did is i tailored each of the cigar blends to try to hopefully show off enough of the pipe tobaccos that you could discern the pipe tobaccos i think for most consumers i think the bayou is just going over their head i don't think they really understand the bayou it's the one that to most consumers seems the least pipe like but I think for a lot of pipe smokers, I think it's the one that actually sings the most to them because it has that general characteristics that a vapor blend would deliver to consumer. A modern vapor blend. A modern vapor blend typically has at least 10% or greater perique in it. Um, the blend that we're using for the Bayou actually is about 25% perique. So the perique is a tad heavy in it compared to um, most vapor blends or traditional vapor blends. Um, but it's, it's a really odd project right now. The sales are fantastic on it right now. All four are selling equally, but that's because it's in its sampling phase. You know, uh, the thing that I don't know two years from now, is it something that's going to get a consumer that wants to smoke it on the regular or add it to their rotation? Or is it just an anomaly that, Hey, this is different and this is neat. So let me try it and see what it's about. And I don't have the answer to that question. And I, like I said, I probably won't have that answer for at least two years to know whether it's commercially a viable idea. Um, but it, it certainly isn't from a lack of trying. I mean, we we used every everything about Stillwell Star is uber top shelf. It really is. Um, so I, I think we I think we did the best job possible. But whether that's good enough, uh, that's yet to be seen or determined. Well, I got to definitely agree with you um, on the Bayou. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. My very, very first experience with the Bayou was the first one that I went for. Um, I couldn't pick up the notes right away. I know there was something distinct that made it different. I just couldn't put my finger on it. And luckily enough, Jeremy 
had the conversation with me and he's like, you got to give it a try first. Like smoke the bayou by itself first, give it a little time and then smoke the cigar. That was my first project. As soon as I came back here from TPE, um, he still happened to give me a little bit, you know, tried it out on a bowl separately and just try to mingle with the actual tobacco itself and then try to buy you. And it does actually have that, that information does actually come to your palate. It does really hit you if you know how to distinguish them. Um, so that one is, is one thing that I got to give you the props on that. Cause it does, I always thought it was going to be like more tobacco, less of the actual pipe. So like I wasn't seeing the bridge until then right. the English definitely hits the notes. Um, I don't know what you did with the actual blend with the English, but it does give me that sense. English blend, the English blend is a very heavy Latakia blend. There's a lot of separate Latakia. I mean, the blend that's used for that one is like literally over 70% Latakia. It's very, because okay. Latakia is the most prominent part that most consumers recognize in an English blend. So I wanted that to be front and center because as you know, if you're a pipe smoker, you can't describe an English blend in a way that's universal. I mean, you have very light English blends like a Chelsea morning or uh, an EMP English. Uh, what is it? It's early morning pipe from formerly Dunhill now Peterson. So you have very light Englishes and then you have incredibly heavy Englishes. You know what I mean? So the range of English is incredibly wide. It's the same as true, too. Like I said, with the Navy, some are much more alcohol forward. Some are way sweeter. Um, and look, and probably the place that is probably the one that I really am. So conventional wisdom tells me that aromatic number one will be the best seller, right? That's just conventional wisdom because it's got that sweet red velvet cupcake chocolate notes the vanilla in the air it's that quintessential kind of aromatic smell what i don't know is did i go aromatic enough with it and part of that has to do with me personally i occasionally like to smoke aromatics but i tend to smoke more subtle subdued aromatics i don't tend to smoke the lane one cues of the world and the other tobaccos that are like it i tend to like smoke ones that are much softer so i made the aromatic number one a much softer style aromatic. So I don't know who it really appeals to. Does it appeal to the person that wants that kind of flavored experience that they get out of like, let's say a, a sweet Jane from Deadwood. I don't think so because I don't think it delivers that level of sweetness. I don't think it delivers that level of aromatic, but at the same time, did I make it too aromatic for consumers? It'll be like, I'm never smoking that. That's just too frou-frou for me. That doesn't taste anything like any cigar I've ever smoked. So I may be in this weird kind of middle area that may not have any consumers but me, which goes back to the original statement. I make them for me first, and I hope other people like them. But you're not always rewarded for having a, uh, a deft hand and having balance yeah. and having some sort of subtlety to what you do. Because people tend to gravitate towards the really mild, the really strong, the really peppery, yep. the really soft. You know what I mean? So the aromatic may not be aromatic enough. <laughs> uh, and honestly, I'm not going to know that answer until we get through the sampling phase. And I start to see whether there's a group of consumers that, you know, add it to their rotation. Well, with that note, there's a very important question that was actually posted here by Axel. 
Um, he was actually wondering, what is Steve Saga's favorite pipe tobacco? Yeah, that's a hard one. It's like everything. It's like asking you what your favorite cigar is. <laughs> it depends on your mood. So let's see what I have on my desk right now. I have the small batch from Beyond from Cornell and Deal. That's a rather heavy blend. I have six pence, which is a GLPs. That's a, um, it's rather unique tobacco. They don't disclose it, but it does have a little alcohol in it. And I believe it's Pernod, to be honest with you, which is really strange because I don't like Pernod at all. It's disgusting. Um, I have Chelsea Morning sitting here. I smoked that one an awful lot. Um, I have a tin of uh, early morning pipe sitting here. I like early morning pipe. Uh, sometimes not just in the beginning in the morning, but sometimes is the last of the day. So I probably have, I probably have like maybe 10 to 15 pipe tobaccos that are like in my rotation. Like I love Deacon's downfall. Like one of my favorite aromatics is, uh, is called uh, English chocolate. That's from two friends. It's a very, it's primarily, it's primarily a traditional style tobacco and kind of a broken flake. And it has just a little bit of chocolate topping. It may not even be chocolate for all I know. They call it English chocolate. So that kind of leads your mind to think it's chocolate, but it, it's kind of a more subtle style aromatic um, that I will smoke. Um, so I, I think my, I think pipe smoking I probably sell or probably 400 different tins of tobacco. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I have a, I have a lot. <laughs> it, it's a rabbit hole, man. It's once you start going down that rabbit hole, you can, you can't <laughs> stop. I'm the same way. I will say this. I don't tend to smoke a lot of Balkans for the most part. I don't tend to smoke really super powerhouse type tobaccos. Um, I tend to lean a little bit more towards the, milder to medium, medium plus kind of range for the vast majority of what I smoke. Um, and look, I'm also lazy. Um, I don't, I don't ever smoke any plugs. I think spark plug is a great tobacco, just too much damn work for me to cut and do the work necessary to make it ready for my pipe. Um, you know, so I tend to, I even tend to stay away from cut flake. I tend to prefer broken flake. But again, that's just me being lazy. And if there's a particular tobacco, like, you know, like I like McBaron's Latakia rolls, right? Which is cut into coins. But when I open a tin, I dump the entire thing in a metal bowl and I, and I break it all up. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then I put it back in the tin so that it's easy for me to smoke because I don't want to go through the exercise of breaking all the tobacco up. You know, and that's true. Like one of my favorite Englishes is Pirate's Cake from Cornell and Deal. And it comes in uh, in uh, basically pressed bricks. Right. And I break those bricks. When I open a tin, I take the whole brick out. I break it all out. I get it all the way that I would rub it out to smoke it. And I pack it back in the tin and I go from there. So, you know, convenience matters, too, to me. Yeah. It, it totally does. I think uh, you're bridging the the pipe tobacco community with the cigar community. You did, man, an amazing Here's the thing job. I don't understand. I don't know. I don't think it's going to take any pipe smokers and make them into cigar smokers. And I don't know whether it'll take any cigar smokers and make them into pipe smokers. You yeah. know what I mean? I, I, I just, I really don't know how it's going to do. 
look, when you make Sober Mesa Brulee, you know, there's people that smoke mild and medium Connecticut shade cigars. When you smoke me, when you make me Rita, you know, there's a market for Connecticut broadleaf, medium full, earthy, dense, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know that, right? When it comes to something like Stillwell Start, I don't know if there's anyone that's ever going to want to smoke that after they smoke the samples. I have no way of knowing because there isn't something like it. Now, are there people that smoke pipe cigars? There absolutely are. But most of the pipe cigars in the marketplace are made with bulk tobaccos like Lane 1Q or BCAA, and they're very heavily sweetened, and they tend to be in the, you know, like the CAO Moon Trance. The CAO Moon Trance is a pipe tobacco cigar, but it's cheap pipe tobacco, cheap cigar tobacco, made in a small format, really heavily sugared on the tip of it. There's a consumer for moon trance and i'm not saying that to be derogatory of moon trance i'm just saying that i know there's a market for that is there a market for a top-end luxury pipe tobacco cigar i have no flipping clue whatsoever well and i and i think i mean we have no idea but the time just time will tell i i wanted to ask you a question steve that um i always ask and and this actually this question originated uh, I heard you talking uh, maybe a year ago about prices going up in different tobaccos, just like Connecticut broadleaf, Pennsylvania broadleaf. And, and this question that I have for you is, um, do you think, right, uh, most of us here are young people where I think the next generation of cigars, uh, buyers, and, you know, mostly mo- most of us are in our 30s to 40s. Um, we got some, some like... Uh, Uncle Axel, he's in his 50s, but he has a young spirit. He made it through the Vegas with us for uh, during an entire week. It's true that he's uh, a little me- messed up uh, afterwards, but he's alive and we're glad to know he's alive. Um, but we've been seeing <clears throat> how prices are increasing. Do you think price the prices of the leaves increasing will take us to see more of different like wrappers uh, in the next years uh, do you think people will go back to smoking more natural more connecticut all the wrappers that are you know not as expensive uh to get such as you know broadleaf look like with everything that's a consumable it's really dependent upon the individual consumer for example i love whiskey i love my brown spirits I don't drink Southern Comfort. I don't drink Jack Daniels. I don't drink Crown Royal. I don't drink Chevis Regal. Now, have I? Yes. Do I think for the money in the bottle, they're very good. Could I begrudge anyone for drinking those things? Absolutely not. I understand why they choose to drink them. I know for me personally, that's not where I'm at anymore in my life. I know for me, I like a certain thing. Now, also, but at the same time, I don't necessarily like the $300 bottle stuff either. I have a certain price point in my mind that I feel gives me the best value for what I like to drink. So most of the brown spirits that I drink tend to fall between $50 and $100 a bottle. That's where most are. That seems to be my comfort place. And I think with all consumer goods, we all come to this value proposition on our own as to what is worth it and what is not worth it. Um, And I think that's the same in cigars. I know for me personally, 
I don't tend to smoke a lot of cigars that are sub twelve dollars. Um, now, does that mean there aren't some great cigars under twelve bucks? There are, but I have to kiss a lot of frogs, in my opinion, to get to the princes. Is what ends up happening. Whereas I find that cigars that are in that twelve to kind of seventeen dollar range, I tend to find like okay. This is where I feel like it's a good value. But I had the luxury of doing that because I could afford to smoke a cigar that's $12 to $17. You know, when I was enlisted and had two babies and I earned $900 a month, that wasn't even the realm of possibility, right? I, I smoked a lot of money makers. I smoked a lot of toppers, you know, because that's what I could afford to smoke. So I think that every consumer will come to a point where they will figure out what the right price break is for them. Now, what I would say to a consumer is it's impossible today to make a cigar out of top shelf materials that's really pretty much sub 12 bucks. We are there now in just costings. We're pretty much 12 is like the bottom end. And it doesn't mean that you can't get a perfectly great cigar for $8 that you're going to absolutely love. But at the same time, it isn't the same. But it's like saying, hey, does everything have to be a ribeye when you love a churrasco, you love a good skirt steak? You know what I mean? So you got to kind of put it in perspective in that way. Um, the one thing that is really good for me um, with the kind of cigars that I make is actually that demographic that is 30 to 45. Um, they tend to be more of a quality consumer over a quantity consumer. And that works to my advantage, having that. So that's a very good sign for me to see that that demographic is willing to pay more and buy less of it. But, you know, 30 years ago, the average cigar consumer, I can tell you what the question is, where I used to be an executive at JR Cigar. Is it big? Is it small? Is it light? Is it dark? Is it mild? Is it strong? I mean, nobody asked about wrappers. Nobody asked about flavors. Nobody asked about the different factories or the makers or the process or any of that. It was a much more commodity only where now there's kind of like different tiers. You know what I mean? You have commodity cigars, but you also have cigars that are of a higher caliber. And luckily for me, that consumer that's between 30 and 45, they are, they are willing to pay more for a better quality cigar. Look, the consumer that's over 55 is too. And that's the reason why you have success of brands like Opus X and Padron and Davidoff. But those consumers, they're not going to smoke a Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust. They're already, they're already locked in. They've already decided, look, when you get to be my age, you just get tired of trying new things. You're just kind of done with it. You kind of figure out what you like and you just tend to buy more of what you like and you be a little bit more sedentary about your choices. Like if I never had another craft batch bourbon in my whole life, I'd be okay. I have like seven or eight that I absolutely love and I don't need another craft batch bourbon to knock one out. And the truth is out of every hundred new bourbons I taste, it's really rare that I find something I go, oh my God, that was amazing. Uh, I can tell you right now, in the last three years, um, I found one. There was a little distillery out of Syracuse, New York, that makes a, a rye whiskey that is finished in chestnut staves. And it just has a really unique flavor to it. 
And it also kind of takes down the pepper bite that you would traditionally get in a rye. And I was really impressed with that. As soon as I had it, I'm like, I call the guy up. I'm like, hey, I need three cases of this. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but that consumer that's in that 35 to 45 year group, they tend to still be playing the field. They still tend to be kissing all the girls. They're trying to figure out what's going to become their favorite, not their favorite. And that's really, that's the demographic that I have a shot at potentially getting. Um, because you don't, I don't look Sin Compromiso, I think is a really excellent alternative for the Padron smoker. I think if you smoke Padron anniversaries, I think you'll be as equally satisfied with a Sin. I would argue that you would like it better, much to the uh, dismay of my good friends, the Padrones. But I can't convince the 60-year-old guy who's buying his boxes of 1926 number ones that Sin Compromiso is even worth trying because he's already made the decision that for him, Padron 1926 number one in Maduro is his cigar. And guess what? Not a bad choice. I can completely understand why he went that way. Uh, I think that on the price thing, I think in the end, yes, you limit your market by making cigars at a higher price point. I mean, just go to Cigars International website. Do the drop-down menu. Cigars under two, two to four, four to six. And then the next category is $6 plus. Cigars International sells more cigars than anybody else. And for them, my cigars fit in the $6 and up category. But that's the same price as any regular you know, cigar from... Abdel or Nick Perdomo, and I'm not degrading those cigars in any way, but you can't compare a $7.50 cigar to a $13 cigar. Now, am I saying that all $13 cigars are worth $13? Absolutely not. Am I saying that all $7.50 cigars are better than some $12 cigars? I'm not saying that either. But there is an appreciable difference between the typical $6 to $8 cigar and then that next $9 to $11 cigar and then that $12 and up cigar. You don't start to really lose that dramatic change until you start getting to about $20. Once you get $20 and up, then it really becomes really fuzzy whether you're getting a good return on your investment. Is there enough appreciable difference for you to say, yes, it's worth it to smoke a Sin Compromiso Paladin de Saka for $29 compared to a regular Sin Compromiso for $17? No. Is it really worth that much more? I think for most consumers, it probably isn't. But it's the same thing in the whiskey market, right? Um, I love a lot of whiskeys that fall in the $70 bottle range. And they have many, you know, 20 and 25 and 30-year-old releases that are $300 to $1,000. And I rarely drink one of those whiskeys and go, oh, my God, that's so much better than the Lagavulin 16 that I drink for you know $78 a bottle here in New Hampshire. And I, I think every consumer kind of has that tipping point Yeah, where yeah. it's, what's the value? Do I feel as though I'm happy with what I'm spending for what I'm getting? I love that. I love that. I, I wanted to say something. We're headed into the Q&A right now, and we have the Sisters of the Leaf. They're on fire here. We, they have uh, their hands raised. We got Cindy and Maddie. Uh, but first, I wanted to uh, acknowledge uh, James Garcia for putting together the first sampler of Cigars podcast for an event. He uh, put together a sampler. I put the link. We had the Magog. We had the 
uh, mi querida Tricky Traca, de Brew, Brew Brulee, and we have uh, another sobremesa. Um, loving it. If you guys want to check out this sampler, just hit the link. And I also want to acknowledge the way um, uh, Black Lion Luxuries has introduced Dumbarton to us. Um, and I think that's also very important. What you just mentioned is what he's doing with the club. Uh, and, you know, we're super thankful and we become a family here. So, James, how are you, man? I'm good, Sergio. And I appreciate you uh, giving me all the love and the opportunity to continue to introduce the the Dunbarton portfolio to those people who have not, you know, had it. And uh, Steve Saka's vision and his passion for what he's trying to achieve with the brand. Thank you. So, so do you have any questions, James? I see you, you get close to the <laughs> camera when you have a question. I already know. And no, I'm I was surprised just... that Axel doesn't have the first question. So I'm just, you have the mic open. I'm going to give you the, the start on this one. No question. Just a, a, just a thank you to everyone that did purchase a sampler ahead of time. And obviously Steve for giving us your time. A little sad that Lafferty's not on here, so I can't make fun of Lafferty for a bit, but uh, I hope everybody's doing well. And if you are interested, I didn't even Lafferty, tell him I was doing this because I think his head would explode. <laughs> uh, Dave Lafferty will be in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania at our brick and mortar on March 5th. If you are interested for an in-person Dunbarton event, and we will have some fun stuff that comes along with these events. That's all. Thank you, Sergio. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, James. Thank you, James. Thank you. So appreciate the support, James. It makes a big difference. I think, it, I think a lot of people don't understand how important. I think a lot of small companies, they tend to try to gravitate too quickly to going direct. Um, I don't think that they understand the importance of a brick and mortar or of a good retailer, even if they're an online retailer that represents you well. Look, I, I can only talk to so many people. Plus two, look, I'm inherently biased. I think my cigars are great. I don't understand why everybody isn't just smoking them and not smoking any other cigars. You're idiots, right? So, I mean, when you think about that, it isn't as effective as a retailer or the staff in the retail shop because they have no vested interest one way or the other. Their goal is to connect their consumers that walk through their door or through their portal with the cigars that are going to best suit them because they want them to be happy. They want them to come back. They want to feel as though they're getting genuine advice. And when you have someone at a retail level that's acting as your champion, per se, that has way more sway and value than anything I could potentially ever say. Because the reality is, I'm not going to ever talk, even as many podcasts as I do, I'm not going to talk to 99.99% of the consumers that are out there that are smoking cigars. It's just physically not possible. Um, so for me, the retail element is really, it's really critical for the long-term success of a brand. And that's Mark, those words. I, I love, I love what you just said. And, um, I want to say thank you to all those brick and mortars who, you know, make make it possible for us to to have a better journey through the cigar and and also support the community. You know, it's all about the community. I love that. And again, I'd said the community has been the best actor, you know, in this past year. So thank you to all of you for being here. And now we have the Q&A and I have. Miss Cindy, Miss Cindy, you were the first one here. We're glad to have you here. Uh, 
go ahead and introduce yourself. Where are you from, Miss Cindy? And go ahead with your question. Hey, Steve. Uh, Cindy from Bossier City, Louisiana. Uh, I've been to St. James Parish several times. I love that little plantation down there. Kevin and I, my husband, have been smoking for several, several years. Some of my first loves were Todos Los Dias, Mi Carita, Sobre Mesa. Um, in the beginning, we did a ton of YouTubing, trying to learn what, what to smoke, what not to smoke, what flavors we liked. Just, you know, we were very green at the time. And I probably have learned 80% of what I know about cigars and smoking from Steve Saka and Nick Malilo and Willie Herrera yeah. and... I just wanted to say thank you for continuing to pour into the consumers, for teaching us, for sharing your dreams, your goals, your yeah, everything. Part of it, Cindy, is look, it's to my benefit. I've, I've always argued that the more experienced, the more discerning a consumer is, the more likely they're going to smoke Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust. You know, so it, it's kind of look, it's self-serving. It helps me, too. It's, and then the other thing too is I like to hear myself talk. So yeah, that, that, that oh, also adds to it all. I love it. Well, <laughs> I just wanted to throw my thank you out there. You have meant a lot to me and you've taught me a ton. So thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks, Thank sir, you, dear. Sandy. Now we have Miss Segor Royale, Maddie. Maddie, how are you? Hola. Hi, good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having this podcast. Mr. Saka, I had the pleasure of meeting you at Fine Ash in Glendale, Arizona. That's where I'm located. Ooh, that's several a years long ago. time. That's a while ago. I yeah, that was a while ago. That was several years ago. Um, and I wanted to actually ask you, so I'm, I'm a veteran also. Um, is there anything from your time in service that influenced how you do business in the cigar industry? Look, as you well know, I mean, look, if I could be the dictator of the world, you know, if I was king of the United States, I'd make every punk kid enlist in the service. I, I think it's just, I, I think the experience that you gain by being in the service, it just, it so shapes the way you view life and gives you experiences and gives you a certain mentality about work ethic and understanding that no job's beneath you and that nothing is minor and attention to detail. And there's so many good things that come out of being in the service that apply to so much of your life. Um, so for me, I, I think that, and I see it now, look, it drives my wife crazy because I say attention to detail all the time and she hates it. When it comes out of my mouth, it's like, I'm saying, fuck you and your mother, right? She absolutely hates too. to hear it, but it, it's <laughs> so true. You know what I mean? And, uh, and I, I think that it's, you know, it's one of those things, Look, there's a lot of things that are really unique about Dunbarton. We're a 50% woman-owned company, right? My father was an immigrant, came to the America, not speaking English, you know, worked as a day worker, stood on a street corner. That's how he got his work in the beginning, you know, raised, uh, raised a family, blue collar. Cindy's very blue collar. Um, I can't. I can't cop to this. I'm not very religious, but my wife is. There's so many angles that, and the fact that I'm a service member, a veteran, right? There's so many things that I could use as kind of like crutches to kind of like help sell the company and why you should buy from us. 
I don't ignore these realities, but I don't really tend to use them as a marketing um, crutch because I feel in the end they're disingenuous at a lot of times. Um, but there's no doubt that my experience of spending six years in list in the Navy has tremendously influenced how I work today and how we operate as a company. Because look, I enlisted in the service when I was 17. So it was during my formative years that it kind of gave me some sort of guidance as to how to live life, how to, how to interact with other people, how to, how to be. And so for me, my, my experience was, uh, even though I don't use it as a selling point, it's definitely integral to how the company operates. And sadly, I don't even know how I answered your question. Ask the question again, because I feel like I went <laughs> off the rails there. What was I the said, question? My question was, is there anything from your time in service that influenced how you do business in the cigar industry? Oh, I guess everything. I guess I did answer that. You <laughs> did answer it. At very Yes, very succinctly. Thank you so much for your time. Not much succinctly, but I answered it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it was it was perfect. Thank you so much, Mr. Saka. I appreciate Thank it. You. Thank, Thank you for for answering my question, sir. Thank you to all the veterans here and all those who served. Um, I actually, uh, Edwin is one you of know, our veterans. Let me say here. this: I don't know how the other veterans feel about this, but I always feel a little silly when people say that to me because basically, I was enlisted in the peacetime Navy during the Reagan years. And all I did was kind of go in circles on a boat, you know, <laughs> indefinitely. I didn't really do anything that really warrants a lot of thanks, other than the fact that I pretty much worked for about 92 cents an hour. I think that's about the only thing that I did that was of any sort of significance. When people say that to me as a veteran, I, I appreciate their support because there's a lot of things that I was able to do because I had the support from others. Fair enough. And, uh, because I, can see because I didn't have time with my family. You know, I missed a lot of time with my family. I missed oh, my, first, yeah. my my kids' first steps. I missed yeah. holidays. Yeah, same um, thing with me. Hours. So I was attached to Canole four years straight. We averaged about three months a year in home port. You know, and then out of the three months, you're in three-section, four-section duty. You only went home maybe 55, 60 nights a year is about what I averaged while I was in the Navy, so. It is what, yeah, look, it's definitely a, it's definitely a commitment that, you know, I want to, I don't want to say this because it's not really true. There are a lot of people that do it, but I think those that haven't done it don't appreciate it. And the, you know what I mean? They look at it like, how could you be so dumb? Why would you ever do something like that? I don't think they really comprehend how much value you get out of being in the service you really you get a, you get more out of it than what you put into it i can tell you that yeah, it, ch it changed my life in a good way well thank and, you and, sir i appreciate it and i wanted to say um you know we have a couple of veterans here and i think um, i'm a military spouse my wife is promoting tomorrow she's getting promoted to major and she's also getting deployed tomorrow so um you know, I think that the sacrifice, you know, that you guys make uh, with being away from your time family. Out, Sergio, you're here tonight doing this instead of with your wife who's being deployed tomorrow. Yeah, we're doing this. Yeah, so kind of we, we didn't life. know she was getting deployed. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is what it is. I'm here in beautiful Fort Bragg, the center of the universe. 
home of the 82nd Airborne. And um, it's going to be my my wife's second deployment after Iraq. When she was 17, she joined the Army. Now she's 34. She's getting promoted to major. And we're celebrating, uh, you know, all her accomplishments, all her hard work. And we're celebrating all the veterans here as well. And I wanted to tell you the community, we started something last year to uh, commemorate Uh, our veterans uh, and fallen heroes and in May and we actually did a t-shirt and we're going to do it again this year that's the t-shirt that Miyagi has uh, cigars podcast so and we donate all the proceeds to uh, all a female uh, veterans organization here in North Carolina so you'll be expecting soon like the call so you can get your shirt and also support all those uh, female veterans who are in need of help Uh, so we, I'm very active in the community and I always like to also acknowledge our veterans. I think we learn a lot from you. I would say I'm a better person since I'm married to my wife. It's just not because she's my wife. Of course, I have to say that, but it's also because of the structure that I've learned. Right. And, and I can say I'm a totally different person. I was just like, man, a crazy dude, disorganized. I was just, you know, and I, I think my life is better because of the way uh things are run around here and and um and now it's my turn to be home with my daughter for about i don't know the next couple of months so um thank god i have this community and we can set i could get my daughter to sleep and come and smoke some cigars with all of you guys so thank you to all of our veterans and we have three more questions and with that we're going to end um but we have alan alan what's up man how are you doing south carolina in the house what's up sergio My yeah. boy Miyagi, what's up, Papa Saka? Um, I got kind of two questions. One, short and sweet. Uh, did you get any of the folklore from Cornell and Dill? I got basically two bowls full from Jeremy at TPE. He gave it to me nice. in a little mini sampler bag, and then when I got back to the house, I tried to order it to find out it was a hundred percent sold out. So. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna scrounge for some. I, I already I already contacted Shane and I think he's got a few tins in his office that he's gonna part with. We'll see. Yeah, I work there as well and I, I didn't get any, so don't feel bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> was, and uh, it was a very it was a very drug dealer kind of sensation. I got like a little sample dime bag of it. And then, you know, because he knew that if I tried it, I'd like it and then I'd buy it. But when I went to buy it, it was too late. It was all gone. And, and my understanding is they made about a thousand pounds of folklore. folklore so it sold really so quick. It was 16 ounce bricks. And I believe I checked the day before inventory and we had about 600. So we had about 600. We probably sold about 400 of those to other retailers. But, um, Yeah, if you get some, let me know, man. Send me a bowl or something. <laughs> Jeremy's really stingy with it for me. Um, but, but my actual question, I was smoking a pulpetta the other day and wanted to see if you could give any insight on how you make a Cuban sandwich cigar smoke not like a Cuban sandwich cigar. Yeah, it's pretty simple. I mean, the first off thing that you have to do with, I mean, Typical Cuban sandwiches are really just all the table chop that any factory generates. So what you have with most Cuban sandwiches are the flavor profile changes 
depending on what they're making on the tables at any given day, right? Whereas with Popetta, it's a dedicated blend. We're taking the table trimmings from Umagog, Mike Rita, and Tricky Traka, and those are being reserved for Popetta. But not all the tobaccos that are in the table trimmings, we hand sort out certain tobaccos that we want from the table trimmings so that we can make a really consistent blend for Popetta. That's number one. The second thing that you do is you don't give these cigars to your least proficient rollers because they're going to be cheap. You actually give it to really quality people so that they can, even though it's a mixed fill cigar, that they make it of a higher caliber. So that makes a difference. The third thing that you do is you always include, in addition to a really high quality binder and wrapper, you also include one full long leaf of one of the trippas in the blend. You don't just use the mix fill because you need that one perfectly long filler piece that's been frog stripped that still has that central rib in it stem, which is what you guys would call it there to provide the kind of the infrastructure in the center of the cigar so that you don't just have small little bits of tobacco without any one cohesive part that's going to allow it to burn and retain the ash. And then the third thing, the fourth thing that you do is you focus on the head filler because and what head filler is, is that's where you change the blend at the head of the cigar, pretty much from just below the band to the tip where that's all long pieces of tobacco that you've just trimmed the size so that the head part of the cigar remains firm and it doesn't allow for those little bits of tobacco to cycle back into the consumer's mouth. So with those four basic things, you can make a cigar using mixed filler um, that really burns and tastes as good as any 100% long filler cigar. In fact, I honestly think if I never disclosed the fact that it was a, a, a table trimming chop mixed filler cigar, I don't think most consumers would have a clue whatsoever. I disclose it because eventually someone's going to cut one open and they're going to shake it out and go, what are all these little pieces of tobacco? But at the same time, you, you definitely, you definitely can make a high quality one. Now I had pioneered this concept when I was at Drew estate with the Papas Fritas, which was a roughly four by 44. Um, I improved it to where we could make it into a four by 48. And I've now taken the technique and I've been able to actually make much larger cigars doing it too. Um, the problem is it kind of gets into the math of just the business end of things. Does it make sense to make a six by 52 mixed fill cigar? I don't know that it really does from a commercial point of view, because honestly, the work that goes into doing it right, it costs more than just doing it with a regular long filler. You got a lot more work having to sort through those table trimmings, having to then cut them to the precise size that you want them, the unique bunching technique. It just, it just mathematically just doesn't work. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's a very unlikely People are always saying, hey, why don't you make Popetta and sell them? I, I don't know that the math actually makes sense because consumers, you know, just a general rule of thumb, 
they're just going to assume that it's going to be significantly cheaper when the reality is it isn't significantly cheaper. In some ways, it actually can cost you more than making a traditional long fill only bunch. And there it lies the problem with something like a popetta. I appreciate it, Steve, the knowledge. I, I know, right? That this is something like, <laughs> you know, you have a lot of people, they talk about cigars, but they don't go into depth about this conversation. So I love it when the community stands up and asks these specific questions. Again, in defense of my friends, you have to understand that most of the people that you talk to in podcasts, they don't actually buy tobacco, sort tobacco. They haven't made cigars. They've never run a factory. You know, most of them are on the sales and marketing and branding and business strategy. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it isn't, it isn't a fair comparison. Now, in your case, you guys, all of you being Spanish speaking, you can get some customers that make cigars, right? That actually do this for a living, who could actually tell you the ins and outs. But herein lies the problem. They're not good communicators, most of them, right? Mm-hmm. They're good tobacco people. They're good cigar makers, but they don't even understand how to convey what they do for a living in a way that makes sense to consumers. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's an area where I have a tremendous advantage over a lot of other people. And, and that's the reason why. Well, we have two more questions. We have Phil. Phil, how are you, man? Let me unmute. Uh, I see to unmute. Good, Sergio. How you doing, man? We're doing great, man. Great to have you here. Great to have all the community here. And and I really love, you know, Phil, I'm going to tell you this. I, I really love how all of you guys go into depth about what you're passionate about, about these questions about uh, cigar smoking. You know, we're not just here talking Dumbarton, Steve Saga. We're talking, I don't know, we're just going to depth about cigars. Cigars, I don't know, one-on-one with Steve Saga. It's just, you know, so much knowledge and so much uh so many good questions and concerns and just, you know, great people here. So welcome, Phil. Yeah. Hey, thank you, man. Uh, Steve, first off, man, uh, thanks. And Sergio, thanks for the opportunity to be here. Thanks for doing this, Steve. Thanks. Thank you for coming, man. It's an honor to be here with you. Um, thank you for the products you bring to the table. Uh, you say you make cigars that you love, but I will tell you this, as for me and the multitude of cigar nerds, for lack of a better term that I hang with, we love your brand. So keep going. Um, my, my, my question for you is, uh, one of my top five cigars of all time is the Brulee Blue. Um, but my question is what brought about the Brulee Blue from the Brulee? Was that an accident? Was that just something else you were blending? And then you're like, you know what, this could be a new Brulee or was Um, that like intentional? No, the, the way this typically works is so I make a blend and I think I'm a hundred percent done. And then after about a year or so, I kind of revisit it and go, hey, I wish I had done this. I wish I had done that, you know, because, you know, once I've, you know, you're smoking things during the phase of doing the blending and it's not the same as smoking it after it's been on the shelf for a full year. Once it's been on the shelf for a full year and I get really super accustomed to the blend, almost universally, I always find the need to go back and kind of tweak and nudge it a little bit. And you'll see this is this is pretty much a repeating theme in almost everything I do. I mean, in the regular Sober Mesa line, the Elegante and Cedros and the Short Churchill are not the exact same blend as the other Sober Mesas in the line. 
it's kind of something that I came to a year, a year and a half later. Uh, look, Tricky Traka is an extension on the original Mike Rita blend. Uh, now, I'm not saying that these extensions are better than the original, um, but I always find myself just wanting to go back and kind of revisit and, and adjust. But I never want to adjust the original core blend because the original core blend, it has people, there are people that still to this day, I saw some blogger this year gave Sober Mesa El Americano his number one cigar of the year. I mean, I made that cigar six years ago, right? So, I mean, that's that's fantastic that a guy still thinks it's his favorite cigar six years later. So you never want to go back and fix something. But at the same time, I kind of want to move forward too. So by doing something like Sober Mesa Blue, it lets me take the brulee blend slightly tweak it, make a few changes and still have the opportunity to sell it without me going and saying, Oh, let me just redo all the sober Mesa brulees to be just like the blue. Plus I can't recreate the blue anyways, because the blue has a year of aging after it's rolled and that's just economically not feasible. Um, so I also have to be pragmatic about the commercial concerns too. Um, you know, look, and for some consumers, I think the regular brulee is better than the brulee blue. I know for me in brulee, I tend to smoke two cigars. I smoke the uh, I smoke the Toro, and I smoke the brulee blue. And I probably smoke three times more brulee blue than I smoke of the Toro. But part of that is too. I happen to kind of like that format. It's kind of a thick Lonsdale. I smoke a lot of cigars in a thick Lonsdale. It's kind of one of the things that's a little unique to my line. I have a lot of cigars that are in that six to six and a quarter by 46 to 48. That's a size that I personally tend to smoke quite a bit of. Look, my favorite Western Osaka to this day is still Naka Tamale. Um, so look, my favorite, I'm smoking it now, Tricky Traka. My favorite Tricky Traka is six by 48, the number six, four, eight. So that's a size that I really tend to gravitate towards. But I will say this. While it'd be a size that I really gravitate towards, commercially, not a good size. Most retailers do not do well with this size cigar. So from a commercial perspective, I really love it. So it's good to put it in something unique like Brulee Blue that has some sort of independent separation. Because you have to understand, for every Brulee Blue I sell, I'm going to sell 20 Toros. I'm going to sell 20 Robustos for every, every you know, thick kind of Lonsdale cigar I sell or make, regardless of whether I think it's better or worse. It's just just the way the market works. But it's, it's very common for me to go back, revisit something, tweak it a little bit a year, a year and a half later. Same thing with, look, Sincompromiso. Paladin de Saka yeah. is a tweak of the Sincompromiso blend. After smoking it for a couple of years, I'm kind of like, you know, I really love the cigar. I just wish it had a little more strength. Just a little bit more. You know what I mean? And when I worked on the blend, I was like, okay, I've got the strength where I want it. But then also I was losing some of the creaminess that makes Sin Compromiso unique to Sin Compromiso by increasing the octane level. So the solution to that was, okay, let me press it a little firmer to slow down the combustion rate a bit because the regular Sin Compromisos are a soft press cigar. Whereas the Paladin de Saka is a much more traditional full trunk Prensado style press and also add the year of aging, which then kind of helps to temper it a little bit. So 
it's it, it's something that I do pretty much almost always. It's kind of a universal truth. I just can't. I always want to fuck with things, but I don't want to fuck up what is already working either. Right. Nice. Thank you, well, Phil. Keep doing what you're doing, man. It's, it's working, brother. Thank you, Phil. Uh, now we have uh, everybody's favorite uncle here. Axel Rodriguez. Axel, how are you, man? Is it cold over there in Pennsylvania? It's fucking cold, guys. It is. He's got the exact same wall as me. The, uh, oh, yeah. The hey. wall. Hey. <laughs> Good taste, brother. <laughs> <laughs> it's cheap and it do the work. <laughs> uh, so, number one, I appreciate the fact that you're here with us. Uh, uh, I was able to see you uh, on TPE. You were crazy busy, so we didn't want to interrupt your business so but having you here with cigar podcast and everybody here uh i appreciate that as hispanic and puerto rican uh, i feel proud that you using a lot of hispanic name on your cigars you know it's like giving back to the is it a cultural appropriation am i not guilty of that as the white dude no actually we appreciate it <laughs> we appreciate it So that's an amazing speaking. I was smoking before the Nakatamale. <laughs> fucking amazing. Uh, I love Nakatamale. It's, it's, like I said, it's my favorite of all the new Westerns. Yeah. I like Nakatamale better than Unicorn, to be honest with you. Oh, hey. and, and, and we got it in our box, in Black Lion Luxury's box, right? We got it in one yeah. of our boxes. So we're getting the good stuff. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So, um, Right now, I'm smoking this one. I don't know. This is something that Luis Castillo gave me in one of your events uh, that you were there. Yeah, apparently, it's one of those event cigars that you... Ooh! Did it have a secondary band on it or just that one band? Just that one. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's the that's just the meat Carita blend, tweaked, and then made in a prensado with a press. Oh damn! Um, that, that, that's that's what that cigar is. Now the other cigar that sports that primary ring on it is the famous 80th. Uh, okay. But the famous 80th comes with a secondary band that says it's a famous 80th. If okay. it came without that, then what that is is that's a Mike Rita variation, uh, the original blue Mike Rita done in a Being in, in that boss press, it make a change at least. It does it makes a huge difference when you press yes. a cigar? I mean, a soft press doesn't have as much of an impact, but when you do a full press like that, it definitely definitely changes the cigar because it ends up changing the combustion rate. Yeah. Whenever you change the combustion rate, it ultimately changes the flavor of the cigar. Yep. It changes the strength of the cigar too. Yep, definitely. So, uh, Steve, uh, something that I really like about you is your honesty. Uh, The guys are. I don't know me. if I'm being honest. Maybe I just lie better than them. Maybe, but you're fucking really good at it. So. <laughs> <laughs> you're really good at, in, in playing poker then. Uh, so the guys are always mocking me because I call me uncle and on and all that stuff, which I am. I'm 51. Uh, and I'm proud about it. One of you cigars that is, I always find it funny because it's like the definition of being sarcastic and And awesome at the same time, I really love it. Is the Lancero. I know that you really did it because people were driving you crazy, but goddamn, it's a fucking good cigar. I mean, it's really, really good. You did an amazing, amazing job with it. Thank you. And wow, 
for somebody that don't like San Lanceros is 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 amazing. But look, just because you don't necessarily like something doesn't mean you want to do it poorly, right? I mean, yes. Look, Lanceros kind of come in two genres. They come in the really super spicy kind of pepper stick variety, or they come in that more smooth, balanced, elegant style. Mm-hmm. I ultimately ended up going with a more smooth, balanced, elegant style of Lancero is what I ultimately did. But that's also a reflection of just my own history with cigars. Lanceros were always considered to be elegant smokes. So to me, to make that swizzle stick style seems counterintuitive to me. Um, my issue always with Lanceros is I've never made a Lancero blend that I didn't feel I could make a better blend if I took it up to a Lonsdale format. Because in a Lonsdale format, you just have so much more room to play. Where in a Lancero format, it's really rather simple. There isn't much blending involved in a Lancero. A Lancero is primarily a cigar that has a binder, a wrapper, and typically two fillers. That's about the only thing that you can fit in a 38 ring gauge cigar. So, and you don't have any room in a Lancero to do any of the more sophisticated bunchy techniques. There's no, there's no repositioning of tobaccos. There's no backfilling of different tobaccos. So it's a pretty limited uh, canvas that you have to work with. So for me, there's never been a Lancero that I've ever been involved with blending that I didn't feel like I could have made better if I had made at least a 44 ring gauge. Um, And that's part of my dislike of Lanceros because I know that I could do better if I had a little bit more space in the dish to work with. The other thing with Lanceros for me is there's always this problem of potentially them being too tight in the draw. Mm -hmm. And, And the reason why most Lanceros are tight in the draw is not because they've tried to put too much tobacco in it. Because look, we, we know how much a Lancero should weigh. A Lancero is going to be a 11 gram cigar, roughly a seven by 38. And so it's very easy to quality control check the amount of tobacco in a Lancero. The problem with Lanceros has to do with the turn in the bunching. Because what ends up happening is the Monchero makes the Lancero and then he puts it in the mold one at a time. And when the mold is full, in a typical Lancero mold, rather than having 10 cigars in it, it'll have 12 slots in it. He'll close the mold. And eventually when he gets however many molds, 10 molds, he'll then put them in the press. Then what will end up happening is halfway through the press, he has to take the press open and open all the molds. And he has to rotate all the cigars 90 degrees. And the reason why we rotate them 90 degrees is not to get an even press. The reason we rotate them 90 degrees is to get rid of the seam line that occurs as a result of the mold. So you need to press that seam line back out. And that's the reason why you rotate them in the press to do that. And what ends up happening with the Lancero is when they open the mold, they go to rotate the cigars. When they take the cigar out of the mold, they lift it out and they push it back in. They're pushing it in like this with their hands as they would with a traditional cigar. What ends up happening is there's just physiologically the Bonchero's hands go a little to the right and goes a little to the other direction, which then causes a slight twist to the bunch. And that slight twist to the bunch is where most of the draw problems occur in a Lancero that even though it has the proper amount of tobaccos in it, 
it can cause it enough to end up being tight and plugged. Whereas with a traditional scar, those same physiological torsion is happening, but it doesn't twist like a Lancero. It's because the Lancero is so pencil thin that it ends up giving the twist where with a Toro or a Boost or a Double Corona, there isn't enough force. So what you need the Bonchero to do is when he lifts the cigar out, you need him to take his fingers and push it back into the mold straight down like this. The thing is, if you hold your hands like this, this is physically uncomfortable to do that. Where doing this is much easier. And so what ends up happening is while you're looking at Juan, he's doing this. But when you stop looking at Juan, he goes back to doing it the normal way. So you always have this hidden potential problem in all Lanceros that you're not going to be able to detect when you put them on the scale. And for me, that's a real problem. And then the third issue that I have with Lanceros is that they're just not commercially viable. Um, the Lancero guys that love Lanceros, they smoke them and they rave about them and they're very loud, but they don't buy that many of them. Most of the guys that are in the Lanceros, they don't find three, four, five brands of Lanceros that they love and buy them on the repeat. What they're always chasing is they're always chasing the next Lancero. So what ends up happening is they'll buy an entire box of a Lancero and they'll smoke one or two out of it. And then they'll put it in their Lancero shrine to spend the next 10 years talking about what an amazing Lancero it is. It's not like the Toro smoker, the Robusto smoker smokes a box, gets to the bottom, buys another box, boom, boom, boom. So sales on Lanceros are really bad. And most retailers don't even carry them at all. They don't want to carry them. Uh, they really don't. So when you add those three things up, <clears throat> it just kind of makes, uh, makes Lanceros unappealing to me. <clears throat> and then there's a fourth thing which is very personal. I'm sure some of you have heard me say this before. I tend to have a general rule of thumb. I don't like to smoke cigars that make me feel like a gay porn star. <laughs> I don't like to smoke cigars that make me feel like a pedophile. <laughs> so that kind of limits the ring gauges that uh, I'm willing to put into my mouth. And uh, so, but that's neither here nor there. Now, I will say this. I'm genuinely surprised by the success I'm not surprised by the initial success of Now Leave Me the Hell Alone. I am surprised by the continued success of Now Leave Me the Hell Alone. Um, now Leave Me the Hell Alone has been in the marketplace for, what, four years? And it sells just as many as Nakatamales, just as many exclusivos. Now, the most recent Moo Western Unstolen Valor sells more than the others, not more than all the others, but it sells about double but that seems to be the normal trend. So when I release the next Moo Western Osaka, I expect the Unstolen Valor sales to go to the level of the others. But the fact that Now Leave Me the Hell Alone has been a commercially produced Lancero consistently for four years uh, kind of blows me away. Um, honestly, Now Leave Me the Hell Alone may be the most successful Lancero in the U.S. market. And when I say the most successful, it's still pretty crappy as far as the amount of sales, but it is really kind of surprising. I'm really, I'm really, I'm really, I'm really kind of shocked by it. But I think part of that has to do with how the retailers sell it, because the retailers tend to have all the Westers on the shelf. So the consumer who's new tends to go, oh, let me try an exclusivo. Let me try the now leave me the hell alone. Let me try the Nakatomali. Let me try, the, you know what I mean? So yeah. part of it is. I think its sales are buoyed 
by the fact that there's other cigars around it and it's part of a series. Yeah, but but what I think it is also is that something that I noticed with your cigar is that you're really consistent in construction, uh, flavors, and all of that. We we and you mentioned something really important. Uh, usually, Lancero have a lot of issues. So far, I bunch I smoke a ton of that Lancero, and to be honest, uh, I never have an issue with one of them. Through the it year. will eventually, it will, yeah, it, it could happen, but this is numbers, right? Like percentage. So, in four years, if I haven't smoked one bad and all of a sudden I found one that it is, hey, I'm still happy about it because I know that Lancero usually are a pain and having one in Let's this amount real. of years. I think 50% of Lanceros that are released are just fucking unsmokable. Yeah. I mean, they really, it's like a one for two kind of rate. And, you know, tying back to your comment, uh, I mean, Axel, I've always been a big believer in consistency because, look, the challenge for me is I want to get 100 people to try my cigar, right? Understanding that maybe one or two will add it to their rotation. Okay, that's all you need. Look, for a cigar brand to be successful in a store, it really only needs a couple, three regular consumers to buy it on the regular for it to earn its space on the shelf. So in the end, consistency is the most important thing because once you get that one out of 100 people to say, hey, I really love whatever, and to buy it on the regular, they become very intimately familiar with how that brand's tastes, how that brand smokes, how it burns. And when it isn't right anymore, you lose that guy. So, and it's one of the reasons why I never go back and fix anything, because I understand that the guy that's buying a Sobre Mesa Brule Robusto, he's buying because he loves Sobre Mesa Brule Robusto. Me changing it to be the exact same blend as Sobre Mesa Blue is not going to make the Sobre Mesa Brule Robusto guy that's buying it on the regular happy. He's buying it because it is what it is. And that's the reason why you see brands like Padron be so successful over time. For whatever you think of Padron, it is wildly consistent from cigar to cigar. It is. And, it th- is. and that's a very big component. And I think that I think that's something that many people don't think about is how important consistency is. And I think one of the challenges for most brand owners is understanding that the only thing consistent about handmade cigars is the fact that they're inconsistent. So in order to make them consistent, you have to constantly change them all the time. You're always tweaking them. You're always modifying them. You're always dealing with the tobacco that's in front of you at the moment. Because you, the consumer, you don't care that I'm following the Betty Crocker recipe card, right? You don't even know what the recipe card is. I I tell you some basic ingredients and there you go, (laughs) right? But the reality is what you care about is, does it give you the smoking experience? Does it give you the strength? Does it give you the burn? Does it give you the uh, the flavor profile? That's what you ultimately as a consumer care about. So part of the thing that I am constantly doing is I'm constantly always adjusting the blends. And it's not crop year to crop year. It's also sometimes bale to bale. It's sometimes leaf to leaf. And that's another part that makes a difference is when you employ a bonchero who actually smokes and understands the tobacco he has in his hand, that 
he can make those changes on the fly where he can go, oh, I picked up this piece of Lajero. This piece of Lajero is a little extra thick compared to all the typical pieces of Lajero I pick up. So therefore, you know what? I'm not going to use a full leaf of this. I'm going to break that leaf and I'm only going to use three quarters of the leaf in this one because this particular piece of tobacco is extra thick and juicy compared to the tobacco that I normally have. Ew. And what that Ew. requires is it requires you to have a Bonchero who A, smokes, B, understands, and C, has the flexibility to adjust on the fly and you trust them to do so. Which makes sense. What the goal is, <laughs> for the cigar that ultimately ends up in the box. And as a result, you end up with a much more consistent expression of the tobaccos. Which makes sense once you, why you use only one person or two. I, I don't remember how many. for uh, yeah, no, unicorn. It, it depends on the line. Like, so, for example, so in Mike Rita Ancho Largos, there are three pairs that make Mike Rita Ancho Largos, right? In Sober Mesa Blue, there's one pair that makes Sober Mesa Blue. But every day they come to work, that's all they do. They never make anything else. I don't ask them to work with other tobaccos. I don't ask them to do anything because I want them to be very dialed in on what they are personally making. Exactly. And the more experienced they become at it, the better they are. And oddly enough, as an American, we typically look at that as wouldn't they be bored as fuck? Why would they want to do the exact same thing every day? But that's not the way they think about it. The way they think about it is, look, they're getting paid piecemeal for the ones that pass quality control. So for them, giving them the simplest of tasks is actually what they welcome. That's what they want. Now, in every factory, there's 1% that's the Aristos and the Chapitas of the world that want to do a wide variety and always be changing and love the experience of moving from product to product and size to size and blend to blend. But they are really not normal. In any given factory, even in a factory that you have a gallery of 200 pairs, you might find two pairs in that entire mix that wants that. Most of them, they just want to come in, they want to make the same cigar every day out of the same tobaccos every day and the same size every day. And just leaning into that inherent perspective of how they like to work ultimately results in better cigars. And that's a challenge for a lot of small brand owners because they don't make enough of anything to justify keeping a dedicated pair on any one product. Because you have to understand, as soon as I decide to move to say, hey, I need more Mike Rita Tricky Traka 648s, I'm instantly committing to at least an additional 250 to 300 boxes a month for every pair I add. So just because I need 50 more boxes a month, I have to be willing to buy 300 more boxes every month to add that pair to make that size. So that requires, uh, that requires a financial commitment on your part to do that. So uh, one other yeah, question before I before I go, uh, are, are you going to planning to go to Puerto Rico anytime soon? No, not whatsoever. Okay, and I, have how no, feel- I have no intentions. I don't even. Do we even sell cigars in Puerto Rico? I, I think we have a retailer or two down there. Oh heck yeah! You you're gonna have a couple of people. Are we trying to bring the brand over there? New Hampshire, they're like 40 miles away. For God's sakes. <laughs> Yeah, you definitely get a, a fabulous tan over there. <laughs> On the blends, I do have a question that if I do not do this question this evening, Mike will never let it go. Um, 
but we saw a picture and uh we've been definitely hoping that this is a thing but uh i needed to ask you about the sin compromiso firecracker that my here's the the problem with sin compromiso (laughs) i don't think it works particularly well in small formats in fact i think the I almost think that the Sin Compromiso Verita Magica is a little off the reservation. And I also noticed that with the Intrepido. Now, the Intrepido is one of those rare cigars where I actually fixed it. I I really love that 5 and 5 eighths by 46 classic Cuban Corona Gorda size. But I was really very dissatisfied with how that bled turned out in the long run in the box. So I secretly even though I'm disclosing it, um, I fixed that one because I was pretty much to the point that I'm either going to fix it or I'm going to discontinue it because I really just felt like it didn't represent the brand very well in any way. And, and therein lies the challenge. It's the same thing with the brulees. People ask me, hey, you're going to make a small format brulee. I've made many samples of small format brulees, but they just they just don't work. You know, it just, it, it's just the blend doesn't adapt itself well once I get below that 46 ring gauge. So when I make a okay. Corona, it's almost like a world onto itself. And that was true of the original Sober Mesa line. In the original Sober Mesa line, I had a Corona Grande, which is five and a quarter by 44. But it didn't taste anything like the other, the other Sober Mesas within the line. And it was the primary. And look, when I discontinued the size, it wasn't because of sales. I actually ended up having to cancel about 400, 500 boxes worth of back orders when I decided to say, hey, I'm not going to do this anymore because I, I didn't feel like it represented what the flavor profile was. Yeah. So certain blends work well in smaller formats and other blends don't work well in smaller formats. Miquerida works really well in smaller formats. I think when you smoke a Tricky Traca 448 or you smoke a Miquerita Gordita, I think it's exceptional. I think it represents the brand very well. I think it represents the flavor profile that you would expect out of a Miquerita. But when you do it in a brulee or a Sobremesa or a Sin Compromiso, it just just doesn't translate, in my opinion. So are you just going to make a cigar to capture some easy sales? I don't know. It doesn't doesn't make any sense. It was the same thing with Todos Las Dias. Uh, I know that the Half Churchill for some people was one of their favorite ones, but it was my least favorite one. The Half Churchill was kind of like an outlier on the fringe. It never, in my opinion, it never tasted as good as the other Todos Las Dias's. I think I think uh, you know how you explain it, it it's it, it's so well and how you say like you know making your point so people understand it's like when you're at a club and you go and ask the dj for your favorite song there's thousands of people in that club and it might not be the song that's gonna make everybody dance so it's your favorite song but it's just not it doesn't go well with the moment and i think people you know need to realize that that fact like what you might like it's not what's good for the brand or what's good for the for the aficionado or the enthusiast that's the thing you also have to understand look i'm ultimately in the cigar business so i have to always consider commercial concerns and the reality is retailers don't want small formats they just don't yep look 
85% of the cigars sold in America are in three sizes. Robusto, Toro, and 6x60. If you just made those three sizes by themselves, you've covered 85% of all the sales. All the other sizes, Torpedoes and Perfectos and Lonsdales and Lanceros and Coronas, all together, they equal 15%. You just need those three sizes. That's it. Yeah. And the reality is most retailers, that's all they want to carry are just those three sizes. Now, you have retailers that, oh, they have a shop that really loves torpedoes, so they focus on torpedoes. You have a shop that has people that work in it that love Lanceros, so they have seven or eight different Lanceros. You have shops that love Coronas, and they carry them. But those shops are a bit of an anomaly. Uh, I think the breakdown is about the same. I think 85%. They pretty much, they just want the more commercially viable sizes. So what I end up doing is places where I think the blend does well, and I think it's a good expression, I'll force those in. Like the Turkey Truck of 448, or like the Verita Magica and Sin Compromiso. I'll put it out there. I'll make it available. You have to understand, on a Sin Compromiso Verita Magica, I literally sell, compared to a number five, I sell maybe one Verita Magica to every number five that I make. Damn. The number wow. five is hands down a much better seller. But I'm willing to fight the fight when I think it's worthwhile. When I don't think it's worthwhile, then I just kind of like, hey, I have, I, have, I, have, I have to live within what the market is, you know? Because in the end, I can make a great cigar, but if a retailer isn't willing to put it on their shelf, yeah. then who am I making it for? I, I can just make a thousand for me to smoke and be happy. Well, Familia, we, we have the last question, and it's the first time Nelson is going to speak English in the podcast. So, Nelson, bienvenido. How are you, Nelson? Vamos, vamos allá. Todo bien, todo bien. Hi, Steve. Hello, sir. Okay, um, I respect you. I'm going to be honest. Uh, my speaking, my English is not very good looking, okay? Um, but I, I try. My Spanish is más o menos. Okay, in Puerto Rico, uh, mi querida is same to other name, okay? Um, but uh, the name of the cigar does not necessarily refer, refer to the querida. But I love uh, how you associate your passion for the tobacco when you make a cigar do you think of the name first of the blend typically the blend i mean the blend the blend almost always happens before the name i mean look there's certain exceptions to that i already knew that sobre mesa brulee was going to be called sobre mesa brulee before i made the blend i i, I knew that in the front but Almost always the cigar comes first and the name comes after. It's, it's very rare that the name comes first in my case. Uh, again, but part of it is you have to understand, I'm the tobacco buyer. I'm the factory supervisor for the quality control of the product. I'm the blender. So that's very different than the way a larger company would operate. A larger company... Uh, look, a lot of work goes into when a big company releases a new brand, it's a very expensive endeavor for them. I mean, something that even if they release it and it sells well, you know, $2 million in sales, 
is still ultimately a failure for them. So wow. for them, the branding often comes first before the cigar. And then ultimately what ends up happening is the factory is then tasked to make a cigar that fits the branding profile that they're desiring to market. And that's typically the way it works. But in my case, typically the cigar comes first and the, and the name comes after is the way it works. But I can tell you a reverse scenario and one that's kind of gotten me into a pickle. Um, I really wanted to release a cigar called Krakatoa. It's been in my head forever. I want to release a really strong, super peppery, super whatever cigar. Krakatoa is a perfect name. Western to Saka Krakatoa. I started working that fucking cigar at like the end of 2018, early 2019, and it still sucks. I've never been able to make a cigar that, in my opinion, lives up to the Krakatoa name. Yeah, can I make a super barn burner, you know, make your dick shrivel cigar? Yes, I can do that. But nothing that has any sort of balance or any sort of flavor or any sort of sophistication. So I finally just have decided, hey, I'm done with Krakatoa. I'm moving off from it. I'm going to leave it alone. But that's a case of where I made the name first and I'm trying to make a cigar that fits the name. And yeah. So, you okay. know, whereas, so I've decided, look, and it's cost me two years because I haven't had a Western to soccer release in two years time because I've been holding out for this damn Krakatoa thing. And I finally just simply said to myself, I have to cut bait. It's not going anywhere. I'm not happy with it. I'm not satisfied with it. And so therefore I'm just going to push it to the back burner. And over the last, you know, five years, I've made so many Western Osaka worthy blends that, okay, well, let's use one of those blends. And so, you know, using one of those blends and then the name comes after the name in my case is very simple. I'm calling it the bewitched. Why am I calling it the Bewitched? Because I actually made this blend as an exclusive for the Owl Shop for their 75th anniversary. It, it was just an amazing cigar. I love that cigar. And it's just, it's medium plus, but it's got this really trancing kind of character to it. And the thing about an owl, I mean, when you think about an owl shop, I wanted to pay patronage to the owl shop, but I didn't want to just simply call it Buho or something like that. Uh, because it doesn't make sense. Plus two in Nicaragua, an owl is a weird omen. An owl is an owl is bad luck and good luck. Yeah. So most owls are considered to be the physical presence of a witch, is what an owl is in Nicaragua. Yeah. Okay. Unless the owl is brown. If the owl is brown, the owl is considered good luck brown owl okay but all other owls are kind of considered to be witches is what yep. they're considered to be so therefore taking on that extension of i want to tie back to the original owl shop i decided to call it the bewitched and that's kind of where my machinations come from from my familiarity with you know just the way the nicaraguan culture works but almost typically almost universally the name comes after to match the cigar, not the name first. And almost always when I do the name first, I find myself in a pickle because naming is really important. And it's not important from the perspective of being sexy and interesting and intriguing, but you want the name to be representative of the product. And it's one of the things that 
I know you, you call it honesty, but I actually call it, I want to tell people what a sin compromiso is. I want to tell them what a miquerida is. I want to tell them what a brulee is. And I want the name to match what the product is in the box. And I don't want, it's very easy to say, if you say, hey, what's your best cigar? I would say it just depends on what you like is what my best cigar is. I think they're all of equal caliber, with the exception of maybe Umagog. Umagog is a slightly lower grade of cigar. Um, but for the most part, I don't consider a Sin Compromiso to really be a better cigar than a Mi Querida Tricky Traca. It just happens that Sin Compromisos cost more to make, so therefore they cost more to buy. Second. But I don't think that a Mi Querida Tricky Traca is an inferior cigar to a Sin Compromiso number five. I don't think that's the case at all. So it's really important to me that the name be reflective of the product that's actually in the box. And I don't think you can name it until you see what it ultimately is. Ooh, amazing. amazing. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you. you, Nelson. Nelson, the English was good. I can tell you, I can tell you a brief example. Uh, General Cigar, many, many years ago, They released a brand called El Diablo, right? The uh -huh. devil. And they branded it as being super picante. Well, I can tell you as a cigar maker, as a tobacco buyer, the term picante is a very negative term. If we say something is picante at the tobacco factory level, that is not a good descriptor. That is a negative descriptor, right? So they wanted to make this product called El Diablo. They had a little bobblehead. They had like the devil on the box and the whole nine yards. But here's the problem. It was STG, General at the time. And General primarily made Macanudo and Stock Partagas. And their idea of El Diablo was, yeah, it was stronger than a Macanudo, but it wasn't like a really strong cigar. It was like a medium-bodied kind of cigar, right? So you have this brand that's like spicy, picante, El Diablo. And you go and you sell it. And the problem is the people that are attracted to that name, when they smoke, they're like, Eh, this isn't this isn't strong. Exactly. This is El Diablo. You know what I mean? And then the guys that probably would have liked the cigar, they didn't try it because the branding scared them off from the branding. Because the branding told them how strong, how powerful, how peppery, and how biting it was. So I, I think that naming a product appropriately is really important. Because I think it tells the story to the consumer to help them make an educated first guess as to whether they want to try something or not try something. Oh, that's amazing. El, 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 that Diablo es un pendejo, really. Um, I, it's like the, <laughs> the Sin Compromiso. When I smoked it the first time, it's like when I was single, that's how I used to live my life, Sin Compromiso. I don't want any compromiso. And, and I remember the first time I saw it in a, in a, in a shelf, I was like, Damn, this is the cigar that I identify with. Like, this is me at this moment in my life. And, and I was loving it before smoking it, you know? Um, and I think that's that's what you just said. It's just, you know, teaches you, teach. It's teaches also, everyone. it's a very ballsy move to name a cigar sin compromise. Yeah, it is. Right? Because it you're is. basically saying it's the best. Yeah, it's like naming a brand best best cigars. You know what I mean? It's a, yeah. it's a, it's, it's a little bit of a risky endeavor. So you have to be confident that the product lives up to the name. Yeah. I think that was the biggest thing out of it, honestly, having that name, that boldness to it. 
definitely it personally is what brought my attention to that cigar. Well, no one will ever accuse me of being shy. True. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally true. Uh, well, gentlemen, we uh, and ladies, we have one last question from Jeanette. Um, and she asked Mr. Saga, uh, what is your most memorable, finest cigar moment? And to that, I saw, I saw that one pop up in the chat room. Yes. I don't even know how to answer that question. <laughs> so let me, let me, let me preface it by saying by my rough calculation, I've smoked about a hundred thousand handmade cigars. Wow. Okay. I probably clipped and lit probably 300,000 handmade cigars. So to try to come up with a most memorable is like almost impossible. I, I, I don't, I don't even know. I don't even know where to begin with it, but I think that I think I'm like everybody else. I think most memorable cigar experiences aren't really because of the cigar, but it's because of the company that you were with or the moment in which you smoked it. So, I mean, when I think about it, I think about cigars that I smoked with my father-in-law um, before his passing. I think about the cigar that I smoked when my second son was born. I think about the cigar I smoked when, Um, I heard my mother had passed, you know, it, it's more about those moments in time than actually the cigar itself um, in a lot of ways. Um, because look, in the end, it's rolled up weeds rolled in a tube. That's what cigars are. Uh, so I, I, I don't think there's any singular cigar that actually has that kind of memorable impact. I think it's the moment in which you smoke the cigar and who you smoke the cigar with that sticks with you more than the individual unique cigar. And I probably my most memorable cigars, regretfully, are probably some of the ones I smoked more in solace than I smoked in celebrate than I smoked in celebration. You know, like I can tell you a cigar I smoked in celebration. I had a really good friend, uh, John Chunko. Um, We were getting together with like eight of our friends. Um, I had brought a box of cigars to share with everybody. It was, uh, what's the Romeo, the Cuban Romeo and Julieta A? I can't even remember what that's called. There's some name for it. I can't remember what they call the Romeo and Julieta A. But he had brought a box of uh, Arturo Fuente, whatever the, the A size of their Don Carlos line was. And I remember when he pulled those out, I didn't pull mine out because, oh, Fabuloso, R&J Fabuloso. That's what the A was called, Fabuloso. I didn't pull the Fabulosos out because JC had presented this box of Don Carlos that was in an A size. And I really remember smoking that cigar because it was super boring. And the whole time I smoked it, I kept thinking, man, I really wish I was smoking the Fabuloso instead. So there's a moment that is very memorable because I was miserable while smoking that. And it was not that it was the Don Carlos's fault. Look, in my opinion, very few cigars do well on an A size. It's almost a journey too long. You know what I mean? It just, it's like you smoke the first half to just get to the good part. You know what I mean? It's kind of the way I look at most A's. I find most of them to be a rather novelty style smoke. Um, but yeah. Most memorable cigar. Whew. 
That's a tough one. Yeah, that's a good question, Jeanette. I think uh, you got Steve thinking, um, reminiscing about, you know, all of those uh, moments and about 100,000 smoked cigars. That's that's a lot. Um, I wanted to ask you the last question, and it's because this is something we we always do. We ask our guests, what kind of music do you listen to? What kind of album or what kind of uh, genre of music do you listen to? We just want we're, we're very into music. We're Caribbean. We're Latinos. We like to smoke our cigars with music. And we also have I'm a playlist. A white fat dude. What was that? Um, I'm a white fat dude. So music isn't quite as uh, isn't quite as important um, for me. You know, I think I'm like a lot of people. I think the music that I listened to between the ages of 14 to probably 24 are probably what I most closely identify with. So it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of hard rock from that era from like 1978 to like 1983 um, or music that was made a little earlier um, or music that was made a little bit later, but not much later, to be honest with you. Um, and you know, so it's kind of a combination of what was popular then. Like, like well, what was it then? Very, what kind of band? You're going to be very hard pressed to convince me that there's been a better rapper than Biggie Smalls. I mean, I just, uh, I still identify. I still, I still play Biggie Smalls. Here I am, 55 years old, and I'm in the truck, and I'm still, I'm still listening to the Essentials plays list from Biggie Smalls. You know, Ooh. I'm still, I'm still, I'm I'm still <laughs> you know, I'm, 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 I'm still there. Um, I just, I don't know. I have to admit, music does not play a big part in my life. I tend to be the guy that listens to more audio books than listens to more music. It's just kind of the way it is. Uh, but then again, I have no moves. I'm terrible. Of the worst. Well, that's good to know. I would have never taken you for a Biggie Smalls fan. I do have like him on my everyday uh, playlist on Spotify. It's like, you know, I love that song where he says, I love it when you call me Big Papa. I just love it. I'm a big guy. I, I love that. I know uh, all the big guys here. Osvaldo is somewhere here. He, he probably likes that song Stevie too. Ray Vaughan. I always tend to like some sort of like a little bluesy rockabilly. So like Stevie Ray Vaughan was one of my favorite artists. I still listen to a lot of that. Um, heck, just the other day, I, I listened to Rush's Moving Pictures. It's been a long time since I listened to that album, but I was like, wow, I was still blown away with that album. Here it is all these years later. I mean, Jethro Tull and his dopey flute. I don't know, but I think, again, it goes back to the cigar question. I think it's also about the moment like i love all of the kid rock stuff from the early 90s you know through the early 2000s i i really like that um you know it's just uh it, it just kind of it kind of depends on uh, the black keys is one of my favorite bands the zombies are one of my favorite bands the white stripes are one of my favorite bands um, i'll still occasionally play the sex pistols Because yeah, I got, I got my first blowjob in Sex Pistols. How could I not love that? <laughs> I mean, I, I just, uh, I mean, so I mean, it's just kind of one of those things. I, I think, I think music, in a lot of ways, at least for me, it 
it ties more back to my youth um, than anything else. I do tend to like really throaty um, female female vocalists. You know, people that just I don't know why I, I, I like a I like I like I like a woman that can really like belt out a song. You know, that just I don't know. I, I always find that appealing to listen to. Um, so. Not so much pop, but look, I'm guilty. I mean, there, there's some pop songs that occasionally I'll groove on, uh, but it is more kind of that Nirvana grunge, you know, old style rock, you know, some of the early hip hop, uh, more than anything. Like, I, look, I don't get mumble rap. I, I don't. I, I know there's. Thank you. Huge, I know there's a huge following for it. I know there's people that love it. I can't stand it. I, I just don't get it at all. I, I don't get the whole EMO and that kind of genre of digital music. That just seems lost upon me. I, I just, I can't, I'm not saying there aren't some good songs here and there, but as a general genre, it's not something that appeals to me. Um, I do tend to like some of the more modern country. It's a little bit more rock and a little yeah. bit more poppy than, than, you know, that traditional my dog died and my wife's leaving me kind of country music. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, you know, but uh, I, I think I, I listen to a diverse range. Most of what I'm listening to that's diverse is all about 30 years old. That's mostly where I'm at. You know, well, that's uh, the golden era. That's the golden era. I, I think I, I, you know, just the other day, because look, meatloaf passed, right? Yeah. So I went back and I listened to a lot of meatloaf songs that I hadn't heard years and years and years. And no offense to meatloaf, there were like maybe three songs that I really liked. You know what I mean? I mean, when I really like when I listened to I listened to like 20, 25 of his most popular songs. In the end, I came down with like three that would actually make it into my playlist, right? Um, so it's kind of kind of the way it was. So I don't know. I, like, oh man, and I you, think it's too. It's a it's a cultural thing, as you said. Yeah, I mean, being Latin, music is so much more integral to most Latin's life. Now, there's exceptions to this. We all know that. There's no way you can be stereotypical about it. But as a culture. You 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 tend to be much more musically inclined than uh, than 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 we white bread people are. It's just kind of the way it is. Well, Steve, we we really want to thank you for for being with us. Um, you know, I'm really proud of our community here, Cigars Podcast, because we you should be. We had a lot of fun, man. I I think this is one of the <laughs> the man like these guys are good like they are you know they study their stuff they know the cigars i'm very proud to hang out with them you should have seen them in the club in las vegas um <laughs> it was it was good i'm telling you it was it was, it was good <laughs> so where, did, where when you were in vegas where did you guys where did you guys go we uh we did a little bit of everything, but we ended up last that's night. That's a dangerous question. <laughs> la, yeah, we, we're not gonna say a bunch of this stuff, but <laughs> last night we ended up at the um at the Caesars because we wanted to treat ourselves. So we got a couple of rooms there, and then uh these promoters they're like, Oh, you want to hang out at a club? And we're like, Yeah. 
sign me up. We we made it to the list. Apparently that night the tickets were like 120 bucks to get in the club. And we ended up in the in the club uh, over there at Caesars, which is one of the hottest clubs with DJs playing electronic music. And we made the most of it. We had fun. We had our drinks, even though that wasn't our music. We ended up at Omnia uh, Club and we had fun. Lasers were out of this world. Drinks were expensive as hell. Thank you to Carlos for paying the round. He paid a round and uh, (laughs) it was almost 300 bucks. Thank you, Carlos. (laughs) Uh, But definitely we we had lots of fun. And I think this is a special community. This is a sad part for me. I'm so jaded to Vegas that I don't know. I, I don't enjoy going there anymore. I mean, I've probably been to Vegas 50 times over the last wow. 30 years. And for me, the bloom is just so off the rose that there's just like, I don't know why. To me, going to Vegas almost feels like work. It Not almost. It does. Yeah, it it's feels a like business trip, right? To, me to go to Vegas. I just, I don't, I don't, I don't enjoy it the way I used to enjoy it. Cause you know, 20 odd years ago, I used to love going to Vegas and now I'm just kind of like, oh, Vegas again, <laughs> really? I got to go there again. And in fact, this year was the first time that I didn't stay in a hotel. I actually rented a house off the strip and, uh, and that and renting a house off the strip is not the Vegas experience in any yeah. way whatsoever. I can highly not recommend it. <laughs> but for <laughs> but for somebody as old and as jaded and as tired as I am, it was like perfect because I do the trade show and then we would just go to the house and they'd be like, Do you want to go? I mean, every night I canceled the dinner reservation. There's not a single night except for one because we had to take someone out to dinner that we actually ever actually went back out again i don't know i just it's and that's one of the things too that's kind of a negative i know everybody wants me to wax poetic about my (laughs) nicaraguan experience but literally i go to nicaragua for work i'm there every month and there's nothing about traveling to these third world countries that I find intriguing or interesting or enthralling. All I can think about is bad food, terrible governments to deal with, and dysentery. That is, that's kind of where I'm at at this point, you know, mentally, which of course is not a great selling point because everybody else just, you know, talks glowingly about the Dominican and Nicaragua and Honduras and all these experiences. And look, I've been, and this is the other thing that's really shameful. It's shameful how piss poor my Spanish is when you think that over the last 30 years, I have spent about seven of those years physically in Spanish-only speaking countries. That's kind of where, I mean, it's absurd how much time over the last 30 years I've spent in third world uh, Latin countries. It's really, it's kind of crazy. But, but definitely, I think, you know, the job, the work that you do uh, brings a lot of, um, you know, a lot of uh, income to those families. They, it gives them a roof. It gives them a purpose to live and, and to develop the economy. So that's yes. something we're grateful yeah, about. I don't, think, I don't think a lot of people realize, Sergio. I mean, the average person that works in the cigar factory environment, they typically make about three times the median salary of what they would make 
in another job within those countries. So when you hear a Bonchero or Lara makes $4,500 a year in Nicaragua, well, that's compared to making $1,700 a year that they would make if they were harvesting coffee beans or picking bananas or something like that. It's, uh, It's actually, it's actually, it actually really kind of, you have working middle class in these third world countries as a result of the cigar industry and it, it makes it makes a huge difference. I mean, that's something that I find very joyful because I run into people all the time that you know I have somehow employed over the last twenty odd years, and uh, you know it's greatly benefited their families. It's allowed them to send their kids to private school. It's allowed them to you know eventually buy a house and buy a car. And I know you say buy a car, but you know what? Buying a car in Nicaragua is a very big deal when you buy a car. That's a that's a pretty monumental occasion when you get to the point that you can afford to buy a car, and uh, and it's it's one of the things that's that's one of the things that even though I'm kind of tired, that's a part that's very rewarding, knowing about how many people's lives that you have managed to improve and benefit. And look, it's two way. Yeah, I've received the benefit of their labor, right? So I mean, there's no doubt that. Uh, I couldn't be able to do what I do if it wasn't for them doing what they do. So it's not one of those scenarios where, oh, you should be thankful that I gave you a job because that's just a, a very ugly way of looking at things. It's a, it's a very um, reciprocal relationship when it's done well. Hey, if you're doing it right, everybody should benefit is what should ultimately happen. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We had Mr. Steve Saka and Cigars Podcast Live. I want to thank each and every one of you for being here tonight. Um, this episode will be available again in iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Cyber FM, and 18 other uh, podcast uh, platforms. So, um, Very thankful of the community. You know, we've grown in these past two years, and we definitely would love to have you again sometime, uh, Mr. Saga. This is uh, your community, and wherever you need us, we'll be here for you. So thank you so much. Thank. Uh, I really want to thank uh, Miyagi for being for the first time here with us, with his sexy voice. Nelson, thank you again. Your Your English was very good. Thank you to Luis Castillo for making uh, this episode uh, possible. And Edwin, uh, thank you because you drank like a whole bottle of bourbon during this uh, episode right here. <laughs> Makes it much more enjoyable. <laughs> thank you to, to all the guys and, and girls who were here. Valo, gracias to all the clubs here. Thank you so much. And with this one, we say hasta la próxima. Lo bueno se comparte. Share the good stuff. This was Cigars Podcast Live with Steve Saga. Thank you.